Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So, back to where you are. You're in the fish shop, you write a song on your break. Yeah. You're basically finding your passion coming back to you. Yeah. Well, that was uh, no. That was while I was in the band. Then, oh, okay, right. And then, but during the end of this sort of, I had a gap year for myself, I suppose you could call it. And then the songs sort of started coming back, and uh, I was getting frustrated because unless you finish a song, you have to sort of exercise it by finishing it. You can't have, you know, that story of ghosts. I never made it to my lover's house. Will you take this uh, pr- treasure under the floorboards to my lover, and then my ghost will disappear? It's a bit like that with songs. If you've only got a verse, exercise them, right? You have. You've got yeah. to finish them off. And so I said to my uh, now drummer, Dan Cav, who was just my buddy, I was like, oh, man, all these songs, they won't go away. And he said, well, let's just jam them out and we can finish them and stop bothering you. And so we did. We started jamming with Dan Cav and then I started creating again. And I started, um, I took my days down at work so I could spend more time creating. But uh, ironically, this is when I had a, another a confidence crash and a really low period for several years. It's crazy, man. Do you know where that comes from? Is it in your family? Is it genetic? No, I don't no. think so. Uh, I don't. I think. I think. Really, if I think about it now, I was. I was having trouble reconciling my new life, which was that I wasn't on tour all the time. Like you said, I identified with that band that it was my life, and I didn't have uh, my dad anymore. Not that he was, you know, obviously he was a big figure in my life. I wouldn't say he was my uh, reigning. He wasn't like my mentor that taught me everything. I didn't lose everything when my dad died, but it was a big divide. And when your parents die is when you become an adult, or at least one of those milestones. Obviously, when you have a kid, that's another big milestone. But that was, it was just a big milestone. My life at that point was so different to how it had been just a year previously. 
I didn't really recognize myself. And also, because it's, this is going to sound stupid, but I grew the mustache. As soon as I stopped being in magazines and whatnot from the band, I knew, ah, oh, shit, I got some time to cultivate this mustache because it was wispy and horrible for about like a year. Mine, man. I wish no, I yours could, is good. I wish I could grow a straw. The handlebar would be my chosen. You've got to stick at it, man. And this I'm, is horrible I'm for trying. the whole year. But it meant that when I looked in the mirror, I didn't even look like the old me. And I'd started wearing these suits just looked like a different person. I felt like a different person. I was very confused and, and not a lot of my life was the same as how it was. And so I think the uh, low period stemmed from being confused about who I was and how it fit. Because, yeah, being in that band, I'd done that for as long as I could remember. Was there one moment that comes to mind when you regained that confidence and you went, I'm looking in the mirror, I recognize myself again now? Or the new version of me. Was there one moment or was it more just a gradual, slow, organic? No, as cheesy as, as it sounds, there was one very specific moment. And I think was... there usually is with things like this. I think there is those oh, yeah? moments of clarity, if you want to call it A that. revelation. Yeah. It would, um, I mean, this is going to sound like I'm plugging a record, but it's the previous record, so it's fine. But the song, I Ain't Your Boy, on An amazing song. Oh, thanks, I'm a Big man. fan of that song. That is all about, that is all about how I felt at the time. It was the absolute... Blah, just everything I wanted to say about how I felt, about how I felt like I was a completely different person and how that related to my wife because I felt so guilty that she'd married this different person, the stripy shirt, fluffy hair, rock and roller. And now I was this sort of somber, mustachioed weirdo in a suit that didn't smile and I felt like I'd robbed her of the person that she fell in love with. So that all in that song. And I played that song to her and said, look, this is how I feel. And she told me, that she loved the new person even more than the old guy that I was worried that I'd robbed her of. And at that point, that really clicked. And I was like, oh, and just for her to say that was so important. And it just, everything just disappeared. And I wish I'd talked to her about it earlier. But um, with her verdict on that song, it just all made it okay. It's so crazy. And I was so lucky to have someone like her to help me through it. And she stood with me all through the low periods, not really knowing what was happening. And I didn't know what was happening really until I wrote this song. And I sang that song last night with my drummer, Daniel. And it's still really hard to sing. And it, it sounds a bit mopey and self-pitying to um, sympathize with how bad you felt at the time. But to have a clear record of how bad you felt, it's like reading your old diary. You connect right back with it. When I sing that song, I feel just as sad as I was then, which is really tough. Um, so yeah, it was that song and that moment uh, from my wife that, that clicked me right back and almost immediately I felt so much better about myself and I stopped hating myself and, uh, and things have been great since then. Amazing, eh? I guess two things which maybe informed this new album, either directly or if not directly, subconsciously, was, I guess, on the one hand, what happened in Paris, right? That had to have affected Josh. 
I definitely think that that's affected. I'm, I know it's affected all of us because we're all pals. You know, yeah. we're all family. And when you have a family member that's in a situation like that, it, it's the, the worst thing is that when you can't do anything about it and you can't get in touch with them to see if they're alive. I mean, that's something that we never have ever dealt with. But Josh, I anyone had ever dealt with that really on that no. scale, had they in the music community? And it's so intensely like the, the idea that you'd be at an Eagles concert, which is the funnest the definition of fun. It's like everyone dances, nobody cares, and everyone's having a good time. To have that just interrupted by carnage like that is it's the worst thing to think of. It's as a, and as a performer, it terrifies me. It's it's heavy duty. So I know Josh. You know, I talked to him right after I heard, and he's like, "I'm I'm I'm handling it." <laughs> so he jumped right into action to make sure that everyone, you know, was safe. That we could get, you know, that we can get answers, you know, right away. And so that takes a lot of coordination when you're on opposite sides of the world. So I think that's added some some anxiety to to what we do, um, and it's and it's made everyone feel like life's too short and it's precious. Has that informed the tone of the album? Because like Clockwork was a bit more despondent and sure dark and introspective. This album Very much, yeah. is a lot more of a celebration of life. It seems it's a lot lighter. Is that a conscious effort to try and remind the world at this point in time that now more than ever we need escapist entertainment and we need I th- to elevate I our spirits? I think that plays and- into it, but more than anything, you know, I, I, yeah, I'm sure that, that you can't really ignore the fact that we have this great life and and um, shouldn't really be focusing on, on the negative sides of things, you know trying to be positive move you know get up and do something um before you know before you run out of time you know that's that's what i that's what i think is the core of where we're at right now and the other experience which must have informed this album is the iggy pop directly spiritual journey into the heart of rock and roll i I watched the film and that gave me a unique insight into that quest yeah and josh did a q a afterwards and the way he spoke about working with iggy and i'm sure he speaks for all of you is sure you know like a dream come true right sure yeah that has a lot to do with our our like our direction as a band too because when you look at iggy and you look at the world of music and how many of our heroes are, are going or gone him of all people should have been gone a long time ago from you know from where he was at, at a certain time but he's still here and he's 70 and he's kicking everyone's fucking ass yeah. and that to me is inspiration because it's just he bleeds every night and he sings until he can't sing anymore and he doesn't really want to leave the stage <laughs> I saw the Stooges one year. Was it James Williamson? He was there with a fucking, like, plaster cast on his leg. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Unstoppable. Unstoppable. So when you you get to play with, again, a lucky, you know, timing is everything. You play with one of your heroes, you got to get something out of it. And I think that when you listen to those, you know, the, the connection between the idiot, Lust for Life... And 
uh, post-pop depression, I think that's where we live, you know. That's sonically, and that's creatively where we live. Um, and so those records will always be an, an inspiration. Um, and so that was fun. And that's probably why you're hearing a lot of synths on our new record, because we got into it, you know, and it's fun. It's really cool to take a sine wave and filter it through a bunch of stuff and like make distort it and put reverb you know there's all kinds of sonic cool shit you can do they're not many rock bands today are doing are they uh, they're not and i think it gets a bad rap because you know there's always oh, that's just the keyboard player but fuck that man our, our like both dean and i play keys and that's that's fun yeah because we're, we're guitar players you know so you always get to change it up when you hit some key, some keys, you know, it changes your mind a little bit about playing guitar. And that's what you need, you know. Did you have a moment with Iggy yourself personally? Was there any sort of exchange between the two of you which really stands out on that tour of just really kind of like seeping into I would say it more? mostly came down to being on stage. Yeah. I mean, I always had to, like, every night this moment happened where he needed the key for China Girl. And so I played the F sharp. So you could just come right in. But it was always this thing like, okay, man, I, I need you. <laughs> I'm like, I'm here, brother. <laughs> I got your back. But yeah, I mean, for me, those were being on stage with him was, was always the, the special thing. Yeah. I mean, he, he came out to do the first rehearsal with us the day after Bowie died. So he just, he showed up and it was heavy. It was a, one of the heaviest like experiences I think I've ever had to, to do playing music is to deal with that emotion, you know, and it, it, it affected him very, very deeply. So, but it, again, that inspiration of like, life's too precious and, you know, let's just go, let's do this now was really like a kick in the ass. Possibly we should have maybe just sort of waited a bit before he made a permanent sort of thing of it, really. You Can know, I maybe... ask you about that sort of period of um, John's well, John, yeah. suicide? And... Yeah, it was a, yeah, it was an awful time, you know. Um, well, did you in any way, shape or form foresee no. well, anything I mean, like that coming? No, no I mean, I knew... Uh, no, I mean, if I'd known, I probably would have got on a plane and gone to see him because I, I didn't know. I mean, it was getting quite difficult with him you know living in america and going back and forth all the time i think he was finding that quite tiring and he had he had a kid as well and i didn't have children so i didn't really understand how it felt to be away from your sort of kids so it is hard but unless you're actually a parent you don't understand that you think oh yeah you know whatever you're in a band um so i think that was quite a strain on him like you know whether he had like pressure from you know from his other half that side i mean i don't know i know i think it was quite difficult 
but I never really saw you know everyone goes through ups and downs you know it wasn't like I mean John was such a bubbly guy and like very popular guy he was always like great in interviews and you know he was he was great for me because he could you know he could do a lot of the interviews and he'd just be really good and sort of funny and stuff and we kind of started the band yet together as well so he was kind of like I suppose you know the sort of heartbeat of the band I've your partner been, in crime I've always been like yeah. the kind of writing like creative one but he was a real driving force as well and also and an absolutely fantastic drummer you know we've always had amazing drummers you know Mark included you know we've been very lucky because they have to be good in a three piece it's hard stuff yeah. to play as well I mean as simple as you need to feel stuff is a drums is a workout you know you've got to be you know up there with Grohl you know it's hard to play um, so yeah so losing him was it was yeah it was kind of horrendous but I didn't really no I never imagined that he did what he did but you know whether it was kind of a moment of madness or whatever I don't know I mean I don't want to go into it too much but yeah I understand you know I know it's just kind of the way I can't even talk about some of the stuff I know about it it's just the way it was kind of done and you know I mean the only thing that really bugged me and I, I and I've it's been in the press there's no point me hiding it is the um, is the um, and it is something which I do think about pretty much every day is that you know the fact that he called me before he did it and I didn't get a chance to talk to him because I didn't know he was because I there was some like random number and I've got called by so many you know like weird people I was just out I think I was in Pizza Express and came to town and so I just with a mate he was over from America as well and I just got some random number didn't answer it and then by I think we ended up getting pretty wasted that night catching up with an old friend he you know he, he slept on my you know sofa the next thing I do is I get a call from uh, you know from John's brother and I'm like oh my god and then I, of course, got on my phone, playing his messages, and I got messages from John on there. It's like, oh god, it was that. That beats me up still. So I'm thinking, well, there's that. Was he? T- we, we, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I think on a, I suppose on a positive note, he wanted to talk to me, and I think, and I could tell by what he said on the phone, just his his voice. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like an angry thing. You know, he wanted to talk to me about something or say goodbye to me. Maybe I don't know. Maybe that was his way of saying goodbye to me. Obviously, I meant something to him. Um, you know, we you know we had a good relationship with John. We used to argue like you know we were like brothers. You know, we'd have punch ups on the bus, and the next day we'd be like you know best mates. People, 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 you know, people that knew us sort of knew we had that relationship. You know, we were really close, but both are equally driven, but in different ways. Um, but yeah, no. To answer your question, I I didn't see it coming. I knew it was getting difficult, just the kind of constant travelling for him and being away from his family, but that's kind of part of being in a band isn't it you know if you make a choice to yeah it's the deal you sign up it, for right? it is it is and it's a shame because it seems like the perfect thing oh he's living in you know in Kendall like, you know near Miami and he's doing the rock and roll thing and but you never quite know do you you never quite know it could just be I mean you know there's a lot of stuff about like depression and all that stuff you know it can hide itself I mean I get depressed sometimes but I think some people hide it very well too well almost that too, they're too not well. aware yeah too well too and late, I, don't, yeah. I didn't you know the last time I saw him was going off on a on a taxi motorbike after he didn't see the UK and he was off with his presence on the back of the bike and, that, and that's the last time I saw him well you know apart from when I saw him you know and he was dead obviously but um, yeah it was it's just weird I still it's, it's still weird now but you know I'm kind of you know I'm sort of angry with him as well because I think it's a very selfish thing to do but at the same time, he obviously he obviously had something there that you know pushed him. You know, 
you know it, it is I mean you do feel you do feel angry because you think why you know it makes you angry thinking why would you do that you've got you know you've got your kid there and all that sort of stuff as well you know forget the band but you know it's yeah It sometimes it feels like it was yesterday but then I've got to move on you know you have to move on for stuff you know you do have to move on I mean it must be far worse for his you know, sort of family but in some way it's awful for his son and stuff and all that kind of stuff but then they they probably don't really remember him so much you know we had all that time with John so that it's all those memories are there so it's very hard to uh, it's, it's very hard to totally move on from it I think you know What about family life for you? How has that sort of improved and changed and focused your professional life? It's been better for me because really in, in, in for many, many years now, you know, I've cut the party in right back because I know that I've got a family to go back to and I want to be in decent shape and I want to be a family guy for them when I get home. I don't want to be coming back with a chronic hangover for three days and then yeah. be grumpy for two days and then sort of sludge back into family life. So it's... I like it and enjoy it a lot more. You know, I suppose also we, when we've been doing this now, 27 odd years, whatever, you know, it's even longer. You know, it's, um, there comes a point whenever we have to sort of get prioritised with the band, you know, the rehearsing has to be good. We have to make sure the studio time, we're not in there drinking whenever we should be recording. We should go in there fully prepared. And then when we go on tour, you know, people, we, do, we owe the people that come and see us after all these years, we owe them a good, a good gig. We've got 15 albums coming up, you know. When we go on tour, they want to hear songs from all those albums, so we can't go on and give them 50 minutes of the hits. If they pay whatever they pay to come and see us in Hamburg or Zurich or Brixton or Manchester, we give them an hour and 45 minutes at the very least, and it has to be a well-thought-out set. You know, and you can't do that if you're up to five in the morning doing Charlie and drinking cans of special brew. <laughs> Can we end it on one of your favourite party stories, if you could share one with me? Uh, well, there was one night in Belfast when uh, myself and five, Michael McKigan, I must have, never, ever took drugs. But myself and five, some of our crew were at my flat in Belfast and we all took acid and we were listening to loads and loads of records. I think we were listening to the Butthole Surfers, which probably wasn't a good idea just because it can stand you spiraling out, but we took yeah. acid. And uh, we decided to go for a walk just as it was getting daylight in East Belfast, which can be a tasty enough place. <laughs> you know what I mean? You don't want to be out walking around there, but that's where my flat was. And there was a, a place that was a duck sanctuary, which was um, a little island in the middle of a pond. Uh, and you could actually go out, you know, if you could walk, you would climb over the wall, get in there, and there would be a couple of little rowboats. And it didn't open to 10 o'clock, but we broke in and you get in the rowboat with that. Let's go over and sit in the duck. It'll be brilliant. We'll watch the rest of the sun come up. So we got into, we all got in and all of a sudden, as we got over the wall, myself and Fife looked around and Fife went, have we got into the duck sanctuary or are we in the zoo? And I said, what do you mean? He said, there's a lion over there. And I turned around and there was a lion about a hundred yards from us. So we said, run, just run. So we ran and we ran and we ran. We were panicking and we got to this barbed wire fence and we, we jumped on the barbed wire, cut our hands, got to the top. And as we got over, we saw Michael and we go, Michael, aren't you running? And his tears were streaming down his face. He went, lads, it's a golden retriever. 
and we had all these cuts on our arms, clothes all ripped. We were convinced we'd broken into the zoo and we're being chased by lions. I don't believe in the traditionalized idea of death. I'm, I'm not afraid of, of dying. I actually look forward to it, you know. Um, it's the great unknown, right? It's the great unknown. And again, intuitively, which I believe in intuition more than any scholar or, or anything that's taught on this planet by any man, man, I believe in my own intuition. My intuition isn't any lesser than the Dalai Lama, okay? It's not. Nor, neither is yours or Kaz's or, or Laura's or the poor kid in Ethiopia or, or the queen, the German queen that you guys got, or Johnny Lydon in Malibu. Yeah. Okay. Um, our intuition is source. Our intuition is that 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 great breath that allows us to just experience the beauty and the joy of what this planet and people have to offer. Yeah, there's these things going on, but that's what they're pushing in your face, this negative stuff to create boundaries, to create hate, um, to separate one another. Um, but then there are millions of realities out there that are living luxurious lives, that are happy, that are healthy, that have beautiful homes, have everything that they want. You know, again, it's about frequency energy and vibration and you need to tap into your own source your own radio dial and i and i and i'm pushing this um i speak of this because i know you have a really big show and i i whether your listener understands or not They'll get it someday, hopefully, or they'll be sleeping the rest of their lives. They're not intended to understand what I'm talking about. But I think everyone knows when they look in the mirror, whether they want to look at their own self or not, they know something's going on. And, and you know, there's this big, mis you know, big party going on. And um, like what George Collins said, you know, and we're not invited. You know what I mean? Like there's this... You know, um, my mind's racing and I have all these things that I want to share all no, the time because so, we only have an hour. But um, yeah, and, and that's how I live my life. And that's how I'm experiencing and experiencing myself. I don't like the umbrella term transgender or transsexual. If I'm going to use anything, it's just transsexual just to help, you know, because people's minds... You know, uh, you know, there's a lot of dumb people on the planet. I'm sorry. They don't want to learn. You know, don't. And, and again, to all the listeners, to you, to everyone, like, don't listen to me. Do your own research. F uh, find out things for yourself. 
you're not going to, you know, you're not going to learn it at school or college or, or, you know, you need to really, you need to be a voracious reader. Get your fucking face out of the phone because they don't want you looking up at the sky. You know, it's another, you know, um, I'm not really too sure how I feel about Steve Jobs and Bill Gates at this point. You know, I've even read really weird stuff about them because they won't even allow their children to have all these devices that we, we're walking around having. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Yes. Why does all this radiation uh, fucks with the body, um, fucks with our DNA, our cellular structure, um, all the things going on in the sky, the, the chemicals they're spraying, um, you know, do I think HARP is organizing these storms and earthquakes? Maybe. You There's know? certainly a lot of them happening, isn't there? Yeah. There's a lot happening right now. But again, who knows what's going on? You are what you focus on. So my big suggestion to people is focus on being happy. Don't be happy after you have the car in the garage. Be happy now and watch love manifest around you. Watch friendship manifest around you. Watch whatever you want and desire manifest around you. It's how I basically live my life, you know. And yeah, I'm not perfect. I have my ups and downs. Um, and that contrast and negativity is good, you know? All these things that are going on in the world, it's to teach us. first joined the group what was your initial impressions of the individual characters of joey of johnny and marky and how did you sort of slot into the group dynamic because it must have been quite an overwhelming experience actually making that first record mondo with them yeah it, it was because you're you sing on a few of my favorite songs on the album as well i was listening to it early which one do you sing on which is fucking wicked main man or main man main man yeah yeah that's um uh it's it's funny when when I first got into the band, I thought I was joining a gang. I always saw the Ramones as a gang. Like I literally thought they were like you know, they were like you know still hanging around together and and, and all that. That's why I had no clue. I was very, I I've never been like the type of fan where I want to know what the band does when they're off stage or you know I yeah, want to yeah. know what their favorite food. I just never was that shit, kind of right? fan. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I'm a music, music fan. Yeah. So um, so when I got there in the beginning. I mean, I noticed it was quiet in the van and I, you know, I noticed it was, you know, not a whole lot of communication going on and whatnot. But to me, I was like, hey, these guys been been together a long time. Um, but I didn't understand the situation between Johnny and Joey until um, I went to Johnny's house apartment for dinner to have dinner with him and Linda one night. And, uh, um, you know, it was the first time, like, I was, like, in Johnny's apartment, and it was, I was, like, you know, wow, this is so cool. And, uh, and then, uh, we had a little bit of time off, and when we used to leave to tour in the States, um, I would have to take the train into Manhattan and then, um, take the subway down to Joey's house. And that's where we all met. We met at Joey's apartment. (laughs) 
Monty would be parked out front with the van. We'd all get there and, um, and we'd leave from there. And um, after that little break where I, I had gone to Johnny's house and met Linda for the first time, um, we got, I, I got to Joey's apartment. I got into the van and, and I was saying hello to everybody. And I, and I said to Johnny, um, how's Linda doing? And all of a sudden, everything got quiet. And I was like, something's up. So we got to, um, we drove to the first show. And when we got there, Monty pulled me out to the hallway, pulled me out of the dressing room, dressing room out to the hallway. And he said, CJ, you really have no idea about anything with Johnny and, and Joey and Linda? I was like, no, I don't have any idea. And he was like, Linda was Joey's girlfriend. And Johnny kind of stole her away, or they fell in love, and and I was like, oh boy, I was like, okay, I get it. I said, I understand. So, um, it uh, it explained a lot, and I realized at that point there was going to be it was going to be like a tightrope walk with being friends with both of them, because Joey and I really. Johnny kind of took right away, me and Johnny got to be like, you know, Johnny was t showing me the ropes and telling me what was expected. So I more communicated with Johnny. <clears throat> Joey, eventually, I actually became really good friends with and used to go to shows with and, and I'd stay at his apartment and we would just hang out and listen to music together. Like Joey and I really became friends, like what you would think of as a friend. Johnny was always my mentor. He was always my mentor, more like a father figure. Um, uh, Is that because he had more of a stern personality that he perhaps wasn't as emotionally open? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. absolutely. And, you know, Johnny really gets kind of a, um, an unfair shake in, in, in general um, for, being a, uh, for being a bit of a prick. But the fact of the matter is, is this, and I'm not saying that he wasn't. You know, his, his, he was kind of tough personality wise and he was very opinionated. But if you think of it, you know, at once Tommy is gone, Tommy was, Tommy's the creator, right? Tommy's the creator of the Ramones. He created everything. The look, the sound, told everybody what instruments they were going to play. He was the manager. He, he managed their career for, for a while. I mean, he really is the guy. Once Tommy leaves... It's like the lunatics are in charge of the asylum, you know? You got Joey, who's mentally unstable. You got, at that point, you got Marky, who's a, a really bad alcoholic. You got Dee Dee, who's a full-blown drug addict. And Johnny. Johnny now becomes the, you know, becomes the guy. And he's got to keep these three, you know, really tough characters to, to keep in line. He's got to make it all happen. It's all on him. He's got to handle all the business stuff. He's got to handle all the day-to-day -day stuff. It's really all on him. That's kind of partially why Johnny was the way he was, you know? So, you know, being that I had just come out of the Marine Corps and I was used to being talked to, you know, and told directly. Barked orders that, yeah. I had no problem with it. I didn't think he was a prick. I just thought he was very direct. You know, I was like, all right, that's cool. But um, once I, once I, I, Monty clued me in on the thing with Linda, I understood like, okay, 
this is going to be a tightrope walk. I'm going to have to like really work to maintain relationships with both these guys. But I thought in the meantime, maybe if I can be that in-between guy, maybe I can help the band kind of, you know, kind of get a little bit more motivated, more together, get things done a little bit in a, in a, in a quicker way and stuff. And of course it was wishful thinking, but in a lot of ways, I think I really did help bridge, um, some of the stuff between Johnny and Joey because they both could communicate through me. Did you have a moment when you were younger then where you were like, I'm in too deep here or I'm going down a path that I don't want to be going down anymore? Was there like one singular event or was it more a culmination of shady shit that sort hmm. of made you go, okay, it's Definitely time for like there was there was kind of one there was a couple of moments, you know, where I got offered a lot of drugs up front, it was a lot of money. Like a big score a type big, deal. Yeah, and I was like, you know, I you know, here, <laughs> the, the, the most insane, like, retarded logic ever. So just ignore my Rob Flynn 22-year-old logic here. But you know, I was really addicted to speed for a long time. Like, really, really addicted. I'd lost, like, 50 pounds. was just, like, kind of emaciated. And so then somehow I said, well, I need to make money. If I sell speed... It'll force me to stop doing speed because I won't get high off my own supply. And somehow that ridiculous logic worked. It did I work. Stopped, I stopped doing speed because then I was just, you know, speed dealer. And so the I don't Rob know why. The rehab method. <laughs> it was like, like <laughs> don't, don't try that ever. Like, I don't even know why it worked, but somehow it worked. And so, and I started making money and I started making some good money. And, uh. You know, I guess they kind of saw me as some rising star in this thing. And, you know, all I was just trying to do is make ends meet and have fun and just have money. And, you know, singles. I was just like, you know, you're dating strippers and you're just going crazy. You know, and it's just fun. The Hollywood it's great. Dream. Yeah. Well, North Bay Area. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, seven yeah. hours north. So. Yeah. Uh, but you know what I mean? Like, it just got really crazy. And when that kind of big amount of, of money came my way, it freaked me out. Like it really just freaked me out. I was like, "Whoa!" Like I, like I don't want this. Like I don't, I don't want to do this. Like I'll never get out of this. I'll is never it, get you're out of this. Scared of getting caught. Scared yeah, of getting killed. Just like, yeah, and like you know, I just want to play music. That's all I ever wanted to do. I was in a band, you know, a couple of bands before that. This was just like in between bands, and while I was getting Machine Head going, and I was like, I, I, if anything, it became this huge uh, inspiration to get make machine head be successful because I just wanted to get away from as far away from that as I could.
it's an amazing and unlikely success story. But yeah. I think from watching the documentary, for me, the band and all of you individually and collectively together seem to be so ambitious and driven and focused. Do you think when you started the band that you could foresee? No. You, no, 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 and that's and that's the secret. I think you know. I think that you know. Living, so you didn't set out to be the biggest band in no, the history no, 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 of Germany. No, no, no. I mean, we were just. I think that we were just. Because some so, bands do, don't they? They set out to of be. Of course, the, of course they do. You know, I, I don't know if it works all the time. I never read like any stories where people are going to be the biggest uh, rock star in the world and it works. I don't know. So for us, it was more about that we were in our own bubble and we weren't desperate at all. You know, we were just. Really don't give a fuck. You know, we were just... I remember one time, like, you know, even like, you know, like people say that couldn't really understand it in England, but the same was in America. Nobody believed in us. Even in Germany, I remember we're going to a record company and putting the tape in the first demo, and it was like, you know, no fucking way. I mean, this is not going to work, ever. You know, and we were just sitting there and listening to those guys, and it was like, okay, I just took the tape out. We were walking out and laughing. We had a blast. We didn't care. You know, we were not desperate because we were so free and so involved in ourselves. I don't want, I, I wouldn't call it ambitious. It was like we're so, so together with us and, 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 and we, we didn't, we didn't know what, what happened around us, basically. You know, we're really in, we're in love with each other. You know, and yeah, not yeah, in yeah. a gay way. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was very intense, you know, to to bring those individuals together. And that's the secret, I think, with all the successful bands, like all the bands that I love, there's strong elements in, you know, you know, where I think like, you know. It's a gang, gang mentality, right? Yeah, and there's like those, you know, that's, you know. You mentioned the word gay there. <laughs> Homoerotic, um, <laughs> provocative visuals and you know actual acts on stage are a big mm -hmm. part of the show tell me a little bit if you can about that special relationship between till and flacker because on stage there does seem to be a very unique relationship between those two yeah i guess so huh? <laughs> <laughs> the beauty and the beast <laughs> the question is where is the beast Who's yeah the yeah. Beast? yeah interchangeable isn't it <laughs> sometimes the other way around actually um I think that uh, it just, you know, obviously, you know, visually it kind of made sense, yeah. you know. I think. And there's obviously real trust and respect there, right? <laughs> well, Underneath the... I don't know what to do, like, you know, <laughs> for them alone. I have no do idea. you just let they them get on with it the rest of it? They, they share a room, that's for sure. Right. <laughs> Not at a hotel, though. Yeah, yeah. You know, those are all gone. Uh, but uh, I, I don't think that anyone else would allow that to do. You know, he was the only one that uh, uh, kind of... Uh, went with it you know and uh, and that's that's flaky you know he's like he's a very strong personality too but he's very on one hand he's very very giving and you know he's one of those guys to where you know i remember like sitting in there in the car with him you know and trying to look for a parking slot you know and they're like you know in front of him like people are going and taking slots and and he's just waiting and I sit there for 10 minutes and I'm just freaking out. I was like, what the fuck? Just go in. No, yeah, but he's very, very giving, friendly yeah. and, and, and doesn't want to confront anyone. And diplomatic. And it, yeah, but not, not diplomatic. Sometimes very shy and, right, and, right. And, 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 and like the opposite of brave, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, uh, that's him. So And somehow, you know, it very works together with them. So. <laughs> 
Tell me about that tour, Joe. That's that band at the peak of their power, right? Yeah, it was, a, you know, I mean, for us, it was the most astonishing thing at the time that you could ever imagine. We were getting open for ACDC. There was a lot of heat on us. So ACDC's fans can notoriously, like, go against any opening act. I mean, yeah. it was it was the way it was. I remember when Alex Harvey opened for Slade and when he first went on, they were throwing things and by the end of the night, he'd won them over. It was, you know, it was just the way it is with support acts. It's either they ignore you or they stay in the bar until the headline act come on or they throw things at you if they don't like you. <laughs> One of three. And with us, it was, <laughs> we were lucky that, you know, ACDC's audience kind of dug what we were doing or whatever and, we, we got a good reception from their crowd, but every night we would go out front and watch them start off the show with Livewire. And I will never, ever forget being in the balcony at the Glasgow Apollo and thinking it was going to collapse because it was moving a good 12, 18 inches like a trampoline. It was scary. Like was, me and Rick Allen were standing in the doorway in case it did go down, we'd still be on the staircase, you know. It was crazy, but it was great fun because Bon Scott was totally brilliant. He was so sociable. The rest of the guys we barely got to know. Cliff Williams, obviously, was okay being English. Yeah. <laughs> but um, Malcolm and, and Angus and, and Phil Rudd were hard enough to crack. You know, I think Angus came into our dressing room once to just see what kind of guitars the guys were playing, and that was about as social as he got. But Bon was fantastic. Did you have a few drinks with him? We had, well, I still owe him 10 quid, bless him. Oh. Um, he came into the bar with a lot of tenors and he saw, I think we had four straws in one pint, you know. And he said, really? He said, buy yourselves a drink, pay me back later. That's the kind of guy he was. <clears throat> yeah, he was a great guy. Um, and he was, you know, he was a fantastic frontman. Um, and it was such a shame what happened to him because we found out he died the night we were playing the Sheffield Top Rank. Um, you know, news broke differently back then. There was no internet. Yeah. And because Peter and Cliff were looking after ACDC, we did we got to hear it before anybody else. And it was just a horrible night, really. It wasn't fun to think, oh man, I can't believe he died last night, you know. And so it was, uh, you know, it was just one of them things that you learn to deal with over the years. It was the first time that we'd come across that kind of thing where it was like personal, because only a few months earlier, we were talking to him and it's like, man, I saw him 10 quid, you know, and... But then, of course, you move on and then Back in Black comes out and we get to know Brian Johnson and he's like one of my best friends now and no better man to replace Bond. But, you know, the respect that, is, that even John has got for Bond Scott is, you know, it's second to none, really. He's totally respectful of the fact that Bond was what he was and he's he's grateful that he got to replace him but would have been happy enough to never do it, you know, and, and Bond still be there. So that's... <clears throat> that's the mark of the man that Brian Johnson is. What do you think about what happened with him and the way it was dealt with? Uh, <clears throat> I wouldn't have done it like that. You know, I mean, I can't, I can't speak for Angus and his team as to what what their reasons were for doing what they did. But considering that we had a, a, a drummer lose an arm and we waited for him the way that they dealt with it was not the way I would have done it put it that way
Who have you enjoyed some good smokes with over the years? Because again, obviously, once you get well known for a certain thing, there'll be people who know that oh, yeah. you're the guy for that. So they'll maybe approach you and ask yeah. if they can blaze with you. Have I've you ever been, had any sort I've, of unlikely? I've I've been <laughs> approached by some un, unexpected and unlikely people uh-huh. to 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 smoke with, and I would have to say, I mean, it doesn't it w- wouldn't have necessarily surprised me that that person smoked but it it was just more surprising that i was the one to smoke him out and there's two uh one was oliver stone it was in um damian marley Mar- marley studio session um some years back and there was a bunch of people there josh stone was there um who was doing something with with um with damian and nas I believe, and it was was sounding incredible at that. And there was a couple other people there, and you know, Oliver Stone showed up. What so, period of his career is he in at this point? He just put out probably like six years ago now, right, seven okay. years ago. So he's made all the landmark films. Oh, for was, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, I mean, by this time, yeah, all the landmark films are out. Um, it, you know, and I saw him smoking some of Damien's weed. And no disrespect to Damien, but my weed was much better. So you know, we offered him some of some of mine. Leave that, yeah. yeah. And uh, you know, he enjoyed our, our weed. He didn't know who the hell I was. His 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 young girlfriend at the time, or whatever she was to him, said, "I'll tell him later," because she knew who we, I was and whatever. And and uh, he lost his keys. After smoking some of our <laughs> some of our high grade, it's probably a good thing. Yeah, which you know was a telling sign. You know, the old guys have been smoking a long time, but they haven't smoked what we smoke because that wasn't available back then. And the other guy, um, which was you know really cool and and really surprising, was Bruce Willis. I was at a club one night. Mark Wahlberg, who was a friend of mine, you know, from the Marky Mark days, from yeah. the Marky Mark days, hits me up and says, "Hey." B, one of my uh, my one of my friends wants to know if he can partake. I said, "Yeah, whatever, bring him over." I did not know that his friend was Bruce Willis, you know, and we started, you know, smoking out with Bruce Willis, and it was the coolest shit ever because he, you know, wasn't he, very mellow, very. He cool. seems like a cool character. Oh yeah, cool as hell, man. Love it. So what that, about Tom Chong? I mean, that guy's for you, I imagine, a real yeah. hero. And he yeah. obviously did so much for, you know, politics, music, comedy, but also just the popularization and the education of people when it comes to in the world of to cannabis, culture. Yeah, in the world of cannabis and, you know, activism within that world, he's definitely my mentor, you know, and I've often told him that, you know, because he he was the one showing us how to freedom fight him. And a host of others, like, uh, you know, Jack Herrera, rest in peace, who taught me a lot about the cannabis world and, you know, the the hypocrisy that exists within the culture and why it's been kept back for so long. I think he'd be very proud to see how much more educated people are about, about uh, cannabis culture now and the politics of it. But those two guys taught me a lot. But Tommy's been like, you know, a very good friend to me, 
you know, we've done each other favors and, and we've worked together on things. And, uh, you know, it's always cool catching smoke with him, you know. Um, but I see what he's doing in the cannabis industry, and I really believe that he deserves all the, the success and opportunities you know afforded to him because i mean he's put in the work he's even served as the example when the government made an example by putting him in jail for for that uh, amount of time that they did and he did not bitch and cry about it you know he served his time, time like yeah. a man and he did that for his son so that his his son didn't have to have a mark on his on his record on his life and stuff like that you know because he didn't have to go to jail for that but he took it upon himself to do that so you know the respect i have for that man is you know it's 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 uh beyond words like him and chuck d are like two mentors in different lanes and they're they're the two guys i i have the utmost respect for I wanted to ask you about Cornell and about Chester. Oh, right. Because for me, there seems to be a real problem at the moment with prescription drugs or illegal drugs. Drugs. Right. And, and a bit, an inability, sorry, to perhaps face reality that some people have. Uh, obviously, you were friends with Cornell, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Chester guys with, too. And Chester. I wondered mm-hmm. if you could just sort of maybe share share your thoughts on, on why we're losing people like this. What's going on? Can we do right. something to change things? To I mean... I can't sit here and tell you like I have the answer to like of course, what happened yeah, yeah. to those guys or, yeah, yeah. or like or there is a good simple answer like I know as a guy who does walk on stage every night uh, and perform these songs that we've created over the, all these years like being a performer like Cornell or like Chester um, is not completely unlike being a lion tamer right you a, a good lion tamer will make it look easy you know he'll make you forget that he's in some serious danger he's in some serious shit those are lions with teeth they want to eat him but through all of his practice or whatever like he has made it look entertaining and fun you know and when you talk about Linkin Park songs and Soundgarden songs talk about dark songs talk about dark songs that deal with demons you know the Chester and Chris and all of us who sing for these bands, like we all wrestle with demons, you know. If you're good at it, and they were good at it, you make it look really easy. And you make it look so easy that the audience forgets that those demons are still lions and they're still dangerous. And just because it's a top 10 single, or like the lyrics are on a t shirt they're selling tonight, or, you know, it's a successful tour or whatever, doesn't change the fact that like the, the core are these songs that are really. You know, people's blood, sweat, and tears are poured into them. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it's it's a scary thing. And I think, and then when you add you when you add the distortion of drugs 
into that mix, then it's really unpredictable what can what can happen. What's really sad too is that I knew both those guys, you know, not really well, but like we definitely kept in touch. I sang with Cornell on stage here in London actually um, before. I've sang with Chester on stage before. Out of all the people that like I've met like out here, they were some of like the the lightest of souls. You know what I mean? Just like just guys who really seemingly had it together right? seemingly had it together like when I t- whenever I talked to Chester it would be at some huge show where I'm sure there was a lot of pressure on him to perform and to be him and be all that is Chester Bennington and nobody was more relaxed and like comfortable than Chester it was like he'd walk into our dressing room like 60 seconds before he was due on stage with some like tour manager like freaking the fuck out you know just like Chester what are you doing and like I want to say how to rise against give me a break you know, and he would just be calm and cool. He'd tell me about some new band he's listening to. I should check out. You know, and it was just like wow, like that guy's like he was just floating. You know, like he had it all together. Like I've met people out here that I worry about. I've met people that are like that guy seems dark. Seems like in a dark place. Never had that feeling about Chester or Chris too. Like Chris, whether it was Soundgarden or his solo stuff, he was like this really warm-hearted, giving generous person who, who seemed all but unaware of his own celebrity, you know, just like wanted everyone to have a good time and feel comfortable, you know, and he didn't, I don't know, those were, I, when I saw those, I thought it was fake news, I was like, no, not, not those guys, like, maybe somebody else, but not those guys, so that makes it all more shocking when, when, when it's people that you really don't think that would be dealing with that people you think that were kind of like people like Cornell who were had survived so many of those grunge deaths you know and he was some of the last guy he's one of the last you thought guys. he'd made it right yeah made it through all this yeah. shit you know and I've heard lots of stories about him and you know, I'm friends with like the audio slave guys and stuff and it yeah. seems like his demons were behind him you know it seemed that I never met him on a personal one-to-one basis, mm-hmm. but I saw him a couple of months before he passed away play at the Royal Albert Hall doing an acoustic show. Yeah. He was telling stories, and he just, as you say, he seemed light. Yeah. He seemed like all of it was just sort of like, I don't know. Like, he just walked into every show, just like, like, it was all fun, you know? It was like, whenever I'd ask him questions about like, hey, what do you do about this, or are you worried about this, or what do you do to warm your voice? He'd be like, I don't know how I think about it, man. I was like, man, fuck you. You're like a god among men. <laughs> Special guy, man. Yeah, Special absolutely. talent as well. Both I know. Of them. So sad. Do you have any friends that voted for Trump? And do you, because obviously you're staunchly, strongly political. Yeah. Do you let politics interfere or even kind of interject with personal relationships? What's your stance on that? It's, it's, this has been the hardest one for me because um, Trump is so obviously a sexual predator, a racist, a bigot, a xenophobe a nationalist, you know, and um, I have a really, really hard time with anybody who voted for Trump. You know, I stopped going to businesses 
that supported Trump. Because, you know, I, I just think that when you support someone that is that openly bigoted and and just mean-spirited, um, what does that say about you? You know, I mean, I understand there were certain people that I know who voted for Trump because they felt like the neoliberal politics of of the Democrats had left them behind. And I totally agree with that. But um, I couldn't overcome the idea that Trump is a racist and you are with your vote for him. You're endorsing systemic racism. You can't say I'm not a racist if you voted for Trump. I mean, I think what a lot of people don't understand about racism, you can have a black friend and still be racist. You know, that's not the whole crux of racism. Racism is it's a systemic issue. It's the fact that there's a certain group of people because of the color of their skin that are discriminated against for the benefit of another ruling group of people. And so, yeah, with with Trump, it's been very difficult for me. You know, there's just certain people that I avoid and that I've kind of written out of my life. Um I've tried to have discussions with certain people. I think that talking to people is important, you know. So that was going to be my next question is this. Yeah. For me, a, uh, a readiness and a willingness to quickly in today's yeah. particularly internet-driven world. Right, right. To just, if someone disagrees with you, just shut them down, yeah. block them out, and only surround yourself with like-minded people who hold no. the same beliefs. Agreed. And that, for me, is very dangerous as Correct. well. Correct. I totally agree. I agree. And and I think that the dialogue is important. Yeah. And I've I've tried to have that dialogue before I've given up in a way. Yeah, you yeah. know. But the anybody that I would say like, okay, I just don't, I'm not going to have this person in my life anymore. It was somebody who was on the fence for me anyway. Yeah, <laughs> you course. know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. So it wasn't well, like. What I'm saying as well, you've taken the time to try and understand their point of view. And you've gone, actually, I'm still not on board with this. I'm talking more about people who just go. He just said something that isn't exactly in line with where I'm at, so he's out. Yeah. Like, there's yeah. a real kind of, that's, yeah. that's rife at the moment. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and I took Trump really personal in that I have African-American people in my family. I'm white. There's African-Americans in my family. There's, um, you know, our, our bass player is African-American people in his family. Our guitar player is marrying a woman from a Muslim family. I have a lot of very good Mexican friends, a lot of very good trans and gay friends. I mean, we know these people. Yeah. And how do you look them in the face if you support someone like that? Not only that, when you talk to them, they're scared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they should be scared because Trump has made the world dangerous for them. You know, I have Mexican friends who are as American as I am who get stopped by the cops now. You know, and, uh, you know, just in a way that they never would before. I have a friend who's Muslim who, you know, we have a line on the new record. The line is when I'm afraid of my name, I know that I'm not free. And again, this kid is as American as I am. Every time he goes to the airport, he's afraid. And, and he told me, he's like, man, I'm just afraid of my last name now. And that's just such a shitty way to have to live that you're in you the know, land of the free. Yeah. You know, and, and so. I took Trump very personal because I see how I see the the impact it's having on people and you know there there people in the refugee community people in the uh, undocumented community who are afraid to go to the police now if they have a problem you know if there's violence 
in their life that's happening. You know, it's like they're not going to go to the police because they're afraid of the police now. Things like Charlottesville. Charlottesville wouldn't have happened without Trump, you know. And look, Obama, I was not a fan of Obama. I mean, you look at Obama's drone program. Uh, you look at his sur- surveillance, domestic surveillance program. Uh, Obama did not go after one single banker on Wall Street after the economic crisis. Um, so I have lots of reasons not to like Obama. I wasn't a fan of Clinton. Um, I think Clinton was basically Obama part two. Um, but uh, with, with Trump, it's it's a whole nother level of... Um, that he is bringing uh, kind of of corruption and destruction, and in general, just a blatant disregard for for people over profits, and that's that's where I have a huge problem. Can I ask you something, Eugene, yeah. which is a big question? Um, maybe you've got an answer for it. Maybe there is no answer for it. Um, what for you is the meaning of existence? Why are we here if there is a reason for you personally? For me personally, I uh, did not know the answer to this for many, many years. and um, Which is... Actually, the the, the name of new album kind of reflects that internal conflict, (laughs) Seekers and Finders. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really... uh, The quest. Yeah, I think the quest, the the, the ironic part of the quest is that despite some of the teachings is that to find if you have to stop seeking. (laughs) That's the the thing, you know. Some, Some cultures say to... To find you first, you must seek. Some say complete opposite. Opposite. Where is it at? I don't know. But what I'm pretty sure of is that um, I think that we are here to learn to operate reality. And, and and cooperate reality, meaning that participating fully in creation uh, of of the events because of the immense psychic power that we have, and uh, it's either dormant, either not, but uh, it, we all have it. It's there, and uh, it's a huge creative uh, potential behind it. So, co-creating or co-operating the, the whole spectrum of things is really 
uh, is almost like what is, I think it's kind of book of the dead of Tibetan uh, origin. It, it said, I think it's where it says that there is a diamond body that you have. It's a sort of a when this body passes away. By the way, I'm a strong believer in that. I'm siding with a theory of re reincarnation. So, so also, as a, just as a footnote, I'm operating from that perspective. The energy has to go somewhere because the yeah, world absolutely. is energy. And it has yes, to go absolutely. somewhere, doesn't it? And, and uh, it's not my choice. It's just what I resonate with. I resonate with that teaching. And I think that the, the idea of diamond body, which is sort of the spiritual uh, body, spiritual essence, is it has many different um, uh, you know sides and, and dimensions. And per one lifetime, you polish one dimension. So you know, this one lifetime, you may be actually working on patience. Or another one, you might be working on your, uh, you know, skill of, uh, say, generosity or sympathy or so empathy. Uh, it could be uh, just general sense of composition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, where you're gonna be a complete dickhead, but like you're gonna get really, really the fucking feng shui right, you know, <laughs> you know, and uh, and all these things that keep revealing is a revolving door kind of thing of. And um, through many lifetimes, I, I believe in my personal, um, you know, in, in my personal vision is that there will be a cumulatively uh, a, a, a diamond body that is indestructible. Maybe there's payoff, maybe there's not, but, uh, but I think that that's a worthy pursuit. Start wearing purple, wearing purple Start wearing purple for me now All your sanity and wits, they will all vanish I promise, it's just a matter of time So yeah Can I ask you this? Um, if you want to go down this rabbit hole with me, I'd appreciate it, but no worries if not. 9-11, um, it seems like obviously a long time ago now, but um, again, as a New Yorker, what was your memory of that event that day? So we were on tour uh, playing, a sh we played a show, I don't know where we played the night before, but we stayed in a hotel room in Connecticut and turned on the television and there it was. Or maybe someone texted or something. I was like, look, turn the TV on. Turn on the TV. And uh, both towers were on fire at the time. We had no, we didn't even like, so difficult to register what was going on. Um, complete shock. I used to work down there because my uncle has a business down there, had a business down there. And my older brother worked for him, and I worked with them when I was home sometimes from tour. So my immediate reaction was to call the office, because, I mean, whenever I would, I would do deliveries for them, like office equipment and stuff, drive a van around the city. 
and I mean, we were in the shadows of the trade center. So, um, I called them, my uncle answered the phone hysterical, uh, you know, and it kind of, I heard the hysteria over the phone and it wasn't just on the TV anymore. We literally like woke up out of bed. So it just didn't register. And then our immediate reaction was, we need to get home. We need to get home. So we drove straight south. There's a ferry in Connecticut that'll take you to Long Island where we lived. And this was before anyone knew how to deal with terrorism in the, on, on this scale, um, in New York at least. And so we were lucky to get home because, I mean, they closed down everything, but we got on with a van and trailer onto a ferry onto Long Island, Un didn't search the trailer. After that, it was like every truck that went through every toll, even now, like there's cops at the crossings where they'll wave you over and ask you to open up the back of the truck, open up the back of the trailer. We got on a... Um, we got on the ferry and then we got off the ferry and drove down the Southern State um, Parkway, which br would bring us home. And you could see the smoke. And we don't live close. We, we grew up about 25 miles from the Trade Center, probably. And you could see the smoke just in the way distance. We were like, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit. You just can't compute it, you no. know? And I mean, I don't know. I was young. And it was just like, I wasn't ready who, who was, but I got home. My brother, my older brother who worked down there, who was down there, he had to run over the bridge. So everyone just ran out of their buildings and ran over the bridge to Brooklyn. I think that he ran over the Manhattan Bridge because that, that bridge is over there. And found his way home. I don't remember how we got home from the city because I'm sure the trains were fucked. But he, I was at my parents just trying to understand what happened. And then he walked in and he was, I don't, he was definitely very upset. And not, I've never seen him like that. And, uh, it, you know, it just kept sinking in and sinking in. So then he was telling us his story. And then he got a call that our boy, his brother, went up into the tower and he didn't come, to, he didn't come back. And they couldn't find him, so. That was when it became really, really real. So. And the cleanup and the, the names keep coming and the death toll keeps rising and the anxiety keeps rising and the feeling that things are never going to be the same solidifies and yeah, it's really, you know, I probably haven't come to terms with it still, you know, I don't even know how you do wrap your, your brain around that. Oh
no, I, I left uh, for other reasons. I had just become obsessed with politics, and I felt very successful at that moment. You know, we'd broken through with the river, playing arenas, sold out, sold three million albums. I thought, you can't sell more albums than that, can you? You know, little did I know. You know, we were about to sell 20 million born in the USA. Well, three million felt like an enormous success, you know, and uh, like I said, selling out arenas, that was your that was your goal in life, you know, to actually find 15,000 people in every single city that want to see you, you know. That was it. You know, I thought that was as high as you can possibly go. So, so you know, my consciousness started to break down this, this tunnel vision I had had all my life of trying to make it in rock and roll, which was an impossible dream. Suddenly, you're there. And that's when I started to think for the first time in my life, you know? And I'm thinking... You're sitting on the pavement thinking about the government. It's yeah, man. For the for first start, time. Exactly right. I start thinking about the government. <laughs> <laughs> I had uh, I had mixed my medicine in the basement, <laughs> and now it was time to, to think about the government. <laughs> and uh, I just started reading every book I could find about our, our foreign policy since World War II, and uh, it was shocked to find that we were not the heroes of democracy I thought we were, and Felt like nobody was really talking about it and, and uh, it needed to be talked about, you know? So I thought, well, again, in that search for one's identity, for one's unique identity, right? You know, I thought, well, okay, maybe that's my destiny to be the political guy, you know? So I'm going to do nothing but politics 100% and be very extreme about it. Could we it, talk about the Sun City song and everything around that? Yeah, it was on, on my list of 44 different conflicts around the world that we were involved in, and I was studying all of them, and South Africa was one I couldn't find out very much information about. It was strangely um, hard, to, hard to understand, you know. Um, so I went down there twice in... Uh, God. I want to say 84, I guess it was. I think it was 84. It must have been. And um, just uh, doing all the research I could do, talk to everybody I could talk to. And, uh, and um, you know, at that point, I'm, 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 my identity had become this sort of artist-journalist combination, you know. And so I'm, you know, trying to stay uh, objective about everything and, you know, just sort of write about it, you know. Didn't plan on getting involved, really. You know what I mean? I'm just sort of observing and reporting, you know, and, and doing it in my art form, which happens to be more of an emotional communication than an informational form of communication. So... I started putting book lists on my records. You know, I said, if you're, if you're interested, if this song interests you emotionally and you want to know the details that went into it, then read these books because this art form is not really built. To inform. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? It's, it's built it's to, to emote. To, 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 for emotional information, you know, not, you know, you know. So 
you know, so I'm still trying to be objective, you know, and I'm down there, and I'm, you know, and I'm talking to everybody, and it's uh, it's an interesting situation down there, obviously, and I'm starting to, like, really think to myself, you know, these reforms I'm hearing about, I don't see it, and, and in fact, uh, this whole homeland policy is quite uh, diabolical, it's, it's quite devious, you know, they're knocking down people's homes, carrying them off to something they're calling their tribal homeland. And I realize the idea of this is to then get them all out of South Africa proper, get all the black people out of South Africa, declare South Africa a democracy, and then bring them all back in as immigrant labor, right? It's just a beautiful, evil scheme that they basically use our American Indian reservations as a basis of, right? And uh, so I'm just sort of beginning to put these pieces together. And I'm in a taxi one day. And, you know, driving down middle of the road. And a black guy steps off the curb. You know, a good you know, 10 feet away, you know, whatever. And a cab driver swerves to try and hit him wow. for, for sport, you know? It's fucking kaffir, you know, which means nigger. Yeah, in Afrikaans. In Afrikaans, and and I and I suddenly, <laughs> my my objectivity went right out the taxi window, <laughs> you know. <clears throat> and I actually, I actually had a had a bit of a, you know, a bit of a, uh, you know, it was sort of a nervous breakdown. I, I, I actually went to the hospital for a couple of days. And I didn't know why, you know. And I realized, you know, this this was this was destiny at work, you know. And uh, and this was now no longer just going to be another song on my next album. I needed to organize. I needed to bring this government down. fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com hey it's Paige desorbo from giggly squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to quince i'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. What's your memories of Tony? Yeah, he's a, he's a great man. He was an old-fashioned socialist. He had socialist beliefs. Uh, he's a man of his word. He, he was brilliant. He was very supportive. Uh, in any, everything you've done, for, uh, not only within the music industry, but out on side projects and all that. Yeah, and he was a he was a good he was a really good man. Yeah, I really liked him a lot as a, a as positive a, as a, like nurturing yeah, yeah, force yeah. on the band. Yeah, yeah. so uh, yeah, he, he's uh, and he was one of the reasons why I joined the band as well. Because after I jumped on stage, I think it was the tube or something like that. Uh, he's, he said that I should be in the band, you know what I mean? So, yeah. He's, so that uh, was how it started. Was that kind of TV yeah. show when you got up yeah, yeah. with Sean and yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, Tony was like, "We've got to make that one turn." At the time, you know what I mean? And uh, Sean felt incapable of going on because he was stripping that much, mm-hmm. and he needed my moral support yeah, yeah, to yeah, help yeah, him yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. He's a spiritual so, guide. Yeah, yeah. So I jumped <laughs> on stage and. Uh, seen a pair of maracas grabbed all of them shook them to death had a big blister in the middle of my hand I shook them that hard <laughs> and uh and, and yeah and then joined the band uh, like started i also what i always find funny is uh some girl said sean the next day oh that was really nice of you letting the kid with special knees on stage <laughs> with you <laughs> so yeah yeah uh, it all started there for me you know what i mean and I'll never forget because uh, I left me bollocks, I left me soul to sleep that night as well. You know, uh, the comedy value over it. Yeah. And because I was tripping as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think you've had the really kind of good side of fame in your life because obviously people seeing you a real, relatable, down to earth bloke. And I think fame can be a horrible thing if you're on this pedestal and in that kind of glass case, you know, like the Michael Jackson end of it. Yeah, You've obviously well, enjoyed I've, the really I've positive, never, healthy. Uh, I've never have experienced that uh, uh, fame or to that sort of degree. So, uh, but you I, must I've, get recognised all the time, right? Yeah, and get, it must well, be quite a nice thing yeah. as opposed to a. Well, I, get, I always get treated kindly, so it's always nice. But what, what I works about with uh, what it is with me is uh, uh, you look at these pop stars, you look at the singers. You look at the guitar players, you look at the bass players, and not everyone thinks, but everyone looks at me and thinks, I can fucking do that, you know what I mean? It takes no special skills, no need, and I think that's what uh, has endeared me, because uh, everyone believes that they can do do that, do what I do, you know what I mean? And they're probably, probably good, you know what I mean? It's just that I happen to be there first before they <laughs> was. You've got to also be tough and foolhardy, I think, right? Yeah, so, to be uh, the best in a band. But uh, so, so that is uh, the reason why people sort of relate to me, because, uh, like I say, not everyone can play guitar, sing, do the bass, drums, but everyone thinks they could do what I do, which is... Uh, uh, it's what makes me popular, I think. You know what I mean? As a, as a person in the band, that's what I put it down. So I spent well, loads of time 
because I couldn't work it out for ages and it, then it came obvious what it was <laughs> I think it all goes back to punk as well doesn't it and that yeah. idea of do it yourself and create yeah. your own community and yeah, yeah so yeah could, it, there's a, definitely a bit of punk that's involved in it as well yeah and is your lifestyle now is that sort of going back to that trying to live uh, outside of the, the box as it were and, and well, live I'm a still a rebellion I've been a rebel since I was five and I'm still rebelling now at 55 and I, I have strong rebel blood flowing through my veins and uh, I can't see that ever changing I, 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 it's uh, I think if I ever fucking had nothing to rebel against I, I'd, I'd lose my purpose in life and uh, yeah I, I love being the rebel Does it change your mind a lot? Do you feel the positive impact? Because I found after not eating meat for the best part of a year and a half, occasionally I've like sort of relapsed on a hangover and had a scotch egg or something stupid. But yeah. I found, A, you feel so much lighter physically, like you feel less toxic. Yeah. And then the mind just, I guess, it starts to feel more clear. I don't know what it is. Does that happen even more so if you cut out dairy and all that shit? Do you find clarity, a sense of lightness? Yeah, I... Because when I first went vegan, I, I mean, I'm a chef by trade, so I, I sort of knew how to cook. I knew what to cook for myself, and I knew my body needed nutrients, so I wasn't that kind of person that went, oh, shit, I'm vegan, I don't know what Just to eat cook. chips. I'm just going to eat chips. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so many people I, do that. <laughs> but I did lose a lot of weight, but I personally think that was all the shit that I had on me in the first place from years of eating meat or whatever, and that just sort of came off me, and then I started putting on weight, which was obviously cleaner stuff. I did feel lighter. I did feel better. I, I was not fair killing. I mean, me. I'm not preaching. I just, I was not fair killing killing animals. They've got a life. Why, why should? Why? What gives me the? Well, it's not giving me the right to take the life. Somebody else has taken the life for me, and then they're packaging up their meat really nicely for me to go. Oh, look at that! That looks lovely. That's not fair. I mean, Christ! If you can kill the animal, chop it up, and then eat yourself. Fair, fair enough. That's that's your deal. But I just, yeah, it was just, it wasn't fair. And I felt better mentally knowing that I was not just not just killing animals, but help because helping towards the planet and how much eat you don't realise what eating meat does to the Cows planet. farts, man. Cows farts, everything. It's They're killing just, us all. Yes, it's, it's, but a lot of people laugh at you when you say that. It's like yeah. honesty, man, do some reading. Yeah, educate yeah. yourself and see what's going on in this world. There's the greed the greed and everything is just oh, it's yeah. It's, it's horrible. But. Well, my granddad was a farmer, so I grew up around oh, the God. idea of, um, I don't want to say organic, but when he was a farmer, it was the 60s, 70s. He got out in the, I think, late 80s, just before it all changed and it all became very industrialized and very mm. corporate takeover and ramped up. And, you know, you had all the kind of genetically modified stuff going on. And, and he, he loved animals, and he always said, like, I love animals, which I could never quite understand. I was like, but you're a farmer. But there was more ethics to that trade and the world of food 20, 30 years ago, I think. 
And yeah. now it's pretty much well. No, they just they it's just, gone, and they on the supermarket yeah, levels. They filled them with antibiotics. They fucking filled them with shit, and then they just gone. They're on a on a production line. Bang, 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 bang. Like it takes. I think it takes a certain person to work in a slaughterhouse. Let me tell you. And I don't think their heads are fully there. But I mean, but, but you know, at the same time, I'm not praising the veg industry either because the veg industry is full of God knows how many toxins. And genetically modified veg, well, you know, Monsanto and Bayer and stuff, uh, merging and and give it a fucking unidentified flying bloody seeds that don't bloody uh, poisonous things that give cancers and this that. It's just terrible. Why? Organic, organic should be everything. Yeah. It shouldn't be this mass-produced crap. We should be getting organic food, healthy organic food. And I buy. I actually buy a box of veg now from an organic, I'm not going to mention the company, but I, every Wednesday, a big box of or seasonal organic veg comes to my door, and that's what I use. I mean, maybe every now and again, I have to go to the supermarket if I need to pick up a little bit more, but then that's, that's, that's what I get, because I just can't. And you do feel better, I find. Yeah, I do feel better, but I feel better because I'm, I'm doing my bit. Yeah. You know, I'm not, per- I'm not perfect by far. But I'm doing my bit, and that's what makes me feel better that I can live with myself. Do you have any um, unresolved issues with stuff you've done for the shows you've been involved in in the past? What's the bad things that I've done? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Are you at peace with all of that? Yeah, I'm at peace with that. I mean, what's done is done. Yeah, you can't you can't turn back the time. I've done it. What are you going to do? <laughs> you know, what are you going to do? Bend me over and slap me with a tr- with, with a <laughs> cane. Mike, when he with, gets with, it. Yeah, with a cane. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm, I'm 44. But I've got to that point in my life. Well, I think I've had, I've had, I've looked up, I think well, this might sound stupid coming for me, but I looked up spirit, spiritual awakening. And that's, and at the moment, that's completely where I think I'm going through, a spiritual awakening. This album that you're about to put out has come into my life at a really interesting point because last year I broke up with a girl I'd been with for three years and Mm. it was a very heavy time in my life and I I ran away from a lot of the pain as many people have traditionally done and will continue to do with alcohol and drugs and you know you're you're you can't face that heartache understandably so so, so, you, you run away and over the last six weeks or so I've been learning to embrace and then through the embracement of it come to terms with it and move forward and the album that you're about to put out is obviously all about that we spoke about it downstairs it's about someone's hoovering outside now (laughs) right when i'm opening my heart to andrew Um, (laughs) and it is about that very notion isn't it and i guess you're a, a firm believer in that fact that life is not always elevated and jovial and easy but it's not about denying the the difficulties and the, the hardships. It's about just actually looking them and... Yeah, staring them down and, for me, looking at them as a test. Sort of, okay, well, let's see what you're really made of now. 
you know, you were doing fine when everything was going your way. Let's see how you do when things aren't going your way. Cause that's when you really see what you're made of, of course. And that, and if with a very sort of advanced and almost detached perspective, can I look at this pain that was either inflicted upon me or that I caused or whatever, or just bad luck, however we want to call it. Can I look at this as an opportunity as, as, life calling out to me and challenging me not to bother me, not to irritate me, not to inconvenience me, not to thwart my precious little plans for that month or that week or that, that year, but to see if I have the strength and the integrity to actually still be worthy of having the title human being. And uh, most of the time, you know, I would fail at those tests or, 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 or have moments of failure within it and then try again to, 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 to rise up. But just shifting the perspective as, uh, and looking at those things as, as, as tests to see if we can sort of like graduate, like you would take a test in school and then you get to say, okay, now you can move on to the next chapter. You've developed a new skill. You've proven yourself to your own life. But that's the, it is obviously easier said than done. Um, it's not supposed to be... It's a very cathartic experience, though, isn't it? When you build up the courage to actually confront it and deal with it, and you get through it, the reward is it's powerful, isn't it? And it's yes. inspiring. The reward is manifold, because also then you remember the next time that feeling comes along, you think, oh, wait a minute. I remember last time I faced something, maybe not this, but something that I thought at the time was the end of everything. And not only did I get through it, but I was better from it. I mean, that's what's so strange is how can the worst thing that happened to us be the best thing that happened to us? And, and, and anyone you talk to, it seems like, and I can say from my own experiences, some of the worst days in my life were also the best day because of what came out of it. It doesn't make sense. I mean, that, that's the way our mind prefers to work. Things shouldn't work like that that's not how it's supposed to go only good things are supposed to equal good outcomes yeah. only bad things are supposed to lead to bad things but for better or worse it's not that simple it all can be useful and ideally force us to grow i mean and some would say if there is a, a to go back to your earlier question if there is a meaning to life or a purpose to life it's to develop these skills and i mean they've people have been saying that since the very beginning that that's what we're here to do we're here to pass these tests Can I ask you a question, Gene? You mentioned about ego a couple of times, and I guess you get a bad rep for being a guy that's all ego. I don't think... May I say this for record? Of course. It doesn't matter to me. 
But I don't think that you are in many ways egotistical. And what I mean by my interpretation of that is that you have a quite a, a valuable and important musical legacy. Kiss, for me, and I've read interviews, seen interviews, you can hear it in the music, everyone from Rage Against the Machine to Weezer, that whole almost 90s alternative rock generation was so... that I, For all of them, I think Kiss were the band that inspired them, you know? And I don't I think that you from, feel the need to have to go out and say... to Melvin's to... Cobain to uh, even Tr- Reznor, who's talking trash nowadays. I welcome all of it. I love all of it. Mm-hmm. And I'm thrilled that I was ever allowed to pick up a bass or a guitar, much less, you know, scale the heights. You, you're never going to be able to get everybody to like you or what you are. And Often, in my estimation, people misunderstand delusional self-confidence for baseless ego. Yeah. Like the guy that walks in a room and says, I'm going to fucking do this, and I did that, and I did that, when they're complete lies. That's one thing. I remember when I was a kid, I heard this new boxer called Cassius Clay that I'd never heard of, who got up, pounded his chest, and said, I am the greatest, and I thought to myself who the fuck does he think he is no actually he knew who he was and he was just stating fact i was unqualified or not informed enough to understand that he wasn't a braggadocio he wasn't bragging he was just stating the fact actually he was maybe continues to be the greatest he is the greatest of all time and so i I accept, and happily, that there there are enough people out there who think I'm an asshole. Hey, I called one of my solo records asshole. I'm okay <laughs> you did, with it. you did. <laughs> Thank you for the privilege of having just the best life. I accept all of it. The barbs and the ego, it's fine. What an asshole that guy is. Yeah, you're right. And uh, the box set here... GeneSimmonsVault.com. I'm never shy about saying, hey, I want you to buy this thing. I'm not going to give it away. I worked all my life for it, and I suspect what you do right now, you get paid for, right? You get paid for I'm it. getting there, Gene. I'm getting there. It's I, early days, but, but you're getting I'm sticking at it. Yeah, yeah, of course. I want to get paid for it, too. I mean, you do it for the sheer sake of creating, of course, but you got to eat, you got to live. And hard work should be rewarded, you right? Stated, you just stated why communism doesn't work and why capitalism continues to be the shining light for all of humanity. Just the incentive to excel means you'll get more money. The guy that wins the race will get more money than the loser. That's good. And success doesn't always mean money. Money is great, of course, but I think success is also a sense of self-worth, that you got up today and you contributed something and you did something. I'd like to put a sidebar onto that. If you totally succeed at something and can't pay your rent... Are you a success? Are you a success? Your answer would be no. No. Because you are not the definer of the entire answer. You're totally dependent on everybody around you. So when I meet somebody who painted something and says, I am an artist, I'm going, no, it's not up to you to determine that. It's up to people to determine that. And when a piece of art 
is so good that you can't put a price on it, it's actually called priceless. It is people that determine whether or not what you do is good. It really is. What's your proudest achievement, Gene, in, in life to date so far? Birth is, birth is pretty good. <laughs> your own. Well, yeah. <laughs> I guess so, right? Once life. you're born, all things are possible. <laughs> Unless and if you're born, you're lucky if you're born in Western civilization, UK, Europe, America, free. Mm-hmm. So you can be a human being and think for yourself. And, and then capitalism allows you to educate yourself and stuff. And I write books about it. I have a new one that came out last week and i think it's coming out in a week here called right. on power yeah and i talk a lot about this was the book that you were supposedly <laughs> bashing people over the head with in fox news <laughs> yeah i heard that i heard that i told I, i'm going to tell pierce morgan what i'm going to tell you okay i told him this morning on the show yeah I, I don't think they aired it was off camera right thousands of people pick that story up even if you completely explain it away interviews the story is already out there i stand by every word i said and every action i take and then you can by the way you can fight it and uh, sue people or take the high road and say you know what i make a living god bless move on also you're cheeky i've been around you a few times and you have a sense of humor and you're playful i'm in a rock band for fuck's sake (laughs) i'm not a priest yeah 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 (laughs) You're, you're talking about lewd behavior turn to page three yeah i mean part of comedy and i'm not a comedian but i'm in a band so i mean you have a license to thrill or whatever but i am who i am Punk as an umbrella term encompasses so much mm. and really inspired and instigated so much beyond mm. it. Mm. But there are certain people who think that it is just this one thing of like mm. a safety pin through your ear mm. and green hair. And and that's not really what it was ever about at all, as we spoke no, about no, earlier on. And it's taken up until now. I mean, it, there's a huge academic interest, uh, interest in academia. You know, they're writing their sort of scholarly books about the real punk movement. And, you know, people like those, you know, what what the history books that you can buy in W.H. Smith about punk are all about those, that early thing. Yeah. You know, it was sort of largely a sort of rock and roll fashionable. I mean, and it the was American scene to... as well, which was almost like that art school. Oh, kind yeah. Of totally, Velvet, underground yeah, inspired. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, and. The bohemianism, which actually, in a funny way, had far more to do with sort of the good and positive side of um, the hippie thing before counterculture. Yeah, yeah, was much more real in 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 the sort of period of punk, you know, which was only months, if not <laughs> a year, behind. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I'm quite certain that 
you know, if we hadn't come along or similar people that, you know, Johnny Rotten would be remembered because he was a great rocker. I mean, or Sid doing my way and that sort of fantastic. I mean, I love that stuff, but I don't believe that's got anything to do with what people talk when they talk about punk movement. They're talking about people who've, 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 who've found interest in animal liberation, gender politics, you know, a whole range of stuff. I was going to say, what really fascinates me about crass, and especially in their relation to the world today, is the preoccupations of that band seem to be what you just said, animal rights, environmentalism, feminism, uh, anti-globalisation, all yeah. these things which now are more relevant than ever, yeah, aren't yeah. they? are more prevalent yeah. Yeah. than ever. The difference being is that now... I think rather regrettably people have made, you know, jumped for single issue politics and for identity politics at the cost of movement politics or citizenship politics. Let's talk more about that. I'd love to talk more about yeah. that and get your ideas on that. Because yeah. I, if I can sort of lead it in and then maybe give you your thoughts, is I do feel like we're in a very almost PC age now mm -hmm. where it's criticised and condemned to speak out of turn mm. by, in many cases, people on the left or mm. people who claim mm. to represent liberalism. Well, anti-far in America are, are, are positively deplorable, in my view, on that level, that they're using the very tactics that they claim to be trying to eliminate. Yeah. In other words, sort of unpleasant Nazism, really. I mm -hmm. mean, I don't say fascism because fascism is a political ideology, not one I agree with, but it's not Nazism, which was downright thuggery. Yeah. Um, and I don't think, you know, to, to include... I think there is a dialogue to be had with the right, you know, in libertarianism, and even with stuff which could be identified as being fascist. I don't think there's an awful lot of dialogue to be had with Nazism, I mean, which isn't to say I wouldn't enter into a dialogue about it. And I get very, very tired of the left, you know, forgetting their own truths. I mean, the moment one starts talking in any way what people see as being right is that either they'll jump at Ayn Rand or they'll say, well, or they'll bring up Hitler. Yeah. Well, people don't bring up Stalin every time you make a slightly left of centre remark. You know, an absolute monster. He, I mean, more monstrous because he killed was more, more of his own people than Hitler. And absolutely. he was more institutional. Yeah, he actually got a, a much more powerful and horrific system going. But that seems to be conveniently out of the story. I mean, I've got no respect for either side. I don't like totalitarianism. I don't like politics. But I, neither do I like what's happening as it like you say in the left which is becoming completely tied up in its own unless I, you agree with me you're wrong and i'm yeah, not interested yeah. in anything you've got to no, say absolutely. you're a racist you're a misogynist yeah, you're a homophobe right. yeah. you're like whoa well, hang on a minute mm, mm, mm. you've got to listen to an alternative opinion to mm, your own to mm. inform and mm. grow and evolve as mm. a human being mm. right mm. that's what we all need to do is listen mm. more mm. Mm. and i think a key part of this regression if you want to call it that or maybe a key part of this breakdown in communication is ironically the one thing that enables us more communication than ever before the internet yeah that and also so i think a sort of overall sense of impotency you know that the uh, an impotency which you know ran right through the sort of whole pro protest movement after the big iraq war marches and things and 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 you know the 
the the protest movement was made up, you know, of the whole spectrum. I mean, it wasn't just left. You know, it could equally be right, uh, thinking right, um, and um, that sort of general disillusionment has led to identity politics, where you know you wear your identity as a political statement. Um, and my attitude has always been, I don't care a sod what you think you are or what you're pretending to be. You know, where can we get together on this? This is weird. My dad did weird, like, videos, like Starlix videos, where, you know, they're almost like training videos with, like, famous people. And he did one with Flea one wow. time, you know? And what year? <laughs> what kind of era? Like early Chili Peppers yeah. days? Yeah, or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, probably either Mother's Milk or somewhere around there. And he let me go to the filming of it. So I got to meet Flea, right? And this is pretty much my introduction to punk music. So I'm sitting there all day watching Flea, you know, and I got to meet Just him or whatever. It up. Yeah, he's playing bass or whatever. And I wasn't even a huge fan or whatever, but he's in a fucking huge band, you know? So I'm like, whoa, this is crazy. And I still barely know how to play. And uh, he has a buddy with him there the whole day. And the dude's kind of on the nod or whatever. And his buddy is in some of the scenes with him in this fucking video where he shows you how to play songs or whatever and since me and his friend were the only ones that didn't really have anything to do we would end up in the green room just hanging out me this little kid and this older dude and he kind of started telling me like you ever heard of black flag or whatever and he started turning me on to music right and so i kind of you know i was a sponge like you are when you're a kid and i was just like okay yeah he told me about all this weird music whatever and when i you know a week later the guy dies and it turns out it was River Phoenix. Fuck. Yeah. But I wouldn't know because I'm a kid and I only knew him from like Stand By Me or something like that. And he's an yeah, adult yeah, at yeah, this yeah. point, you know. But then I see it on the news and I kind of like, you know, make that sort of connection that like, whoa, that was that guy. And okay. You know, and so that even kind of further made me want to investigate what he was talking about. But yeah, River Phoenix is like the first person that told me about punk. Wow. Weird, right? I'm just trying to stay alive. The I stay wasn't always nice. I don't stand, I don't advise. I'm just trying to stay alive. Nothing stays the same, but shit don't ever change. Calling me on repeat, but I'm way too far out of range. I drive a big rig off the Venice Pier to see if it will float. I also spend a lot of time on my own and when you are freelance and when you're very much a solo artist you know I am as much in the sense that you are you know this is a very much a solo endeavor other than these moments where I sit down and talk with someone else and it can be hard to not get trapped in your own mind and be broken and depressed and do you know what I mean do you find that 
Dude, seriously, like, like within an hour of any given day, I can go from being so euphoric and excited about what I'm doing and not just what I'm doing, what I'm doing that second in maybe the song I've written or the the future that I know is coming to being like just <coughs> unable to even think that anything good's happening. That and and maybe I've been a bit almost selfish in thinking it's a songwriter's thing because maybe it is just the the freelance stroke on your own thing. I think I do think a lot of it is not just the songwriter but the creative. I spend all my time thinking, writing lyrics, and and you you, you spend all your time just delving inside your own head. Yeah, you, you, yeah, and and it's almost like I mean I I always hate to call this a job, but I guess it, it technically is because other than my solo stuff, which is just a, a need, solo stuff stroke, you know, when I was in the band and everything. But even on like like everything I'm doing is just like like I can't describe. And you know this about me previously. Nothing's changed since we last spoke in Lost Alone. This is 24-7. I don't have a choice. Like it, And that is, I don't have a choice in the excitement I get in at 3am when I have to be writing uh, or at 3am where like I'm just like in a world of doom thinking like what what's the point in everything? It, you know what I mean? Like it's... And talking about it is so odd because, like you said, I actually think you're luckier than me and and probably sounds patronising because when anyone's in any kind of state of like that, it's not very nice, but you actually get to do this. Yeah, engage and interact. Yeah, whereas I would love to... If if part of my songwriting was that... More collaborative. Every day I was talking to someone about everything. I'd love that. And... I do do, you know, probably get onto this, but I've started doing a lot of songwriting for other people and I, I do do that, but also a lot of my songwriting for other people. I'm one of those guys that I write it all here on my own and then it goes to other people and they have the fun of doing the collaborative thing because I'm not a great collaborator. I tend to write stuff, send it, and then go, cool, do what you want. And that's what people like about the way I do things. I'm getting more into doing it with people because I'd like to... I'd like to be able to be a diplomat. <laughs> I've just never been yeah, very. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've yeah. just, I, I, you know, I, I just, I just liked. I, I think it's, it's nothing against the other people. I'm not very good at writing with people. I'm getting better at it, but uh, I'm at my best when it's just like you know. You're the mad scientist. Yeah, in I, I the just, lab. Yeah, it's cooking up. Yeah, so, on your own. Yeah, so yeah, that was a bit of a, a, a pivot away. So there are no pivots. Saying. There are no pivots. That's, that's true. It's um, yeah. I mean, this year for me is this podcast is pretty much. I mean, people do say it, and it can sound melodramatic, but it's true. It saved my life. Like I would have gone off the deep end, and I've peered over several yeah, times yeah, yeah. this year. It's been a struggle, and you know, when you're out there on your own, as you know, especially after you know, lost alone, finished and ended, yeah. that was your whole life up till that point. Absolutely, my whole life rebuild. since I could ever remember. Like even though you know, me and Mark did other bands, but it was the death of mine and Mark's eleven-year-old dreams. Yeah, like and. You know, loads of bands split up and loads of bands do it. I'm not taking it away from anybody else, but, you know, there's probably loads of bands that are as passionate as we were and, and stuff like this. But I I think it was, we're definitely in the minority where it was a, from the age of 11, we were like as extreme as I still am now. And me and Mark, 
there's not many bands that the same people are we were just together for that entire time um so it was the death of that as well of everything since you know before 11 i was a child who liked football and star wars and star wars yeah and and things like that so it, it was like my thing so the the way i dealt with it was before the final shows i'd the, the second we knew it was going to stop i just did what i do which was i was making my solo album and i was flying off and staying in switzerland and writing songs again all introspective and so like you know, and then the day after the final show, I flew to Switzerland. It sounds like I go to Switzerland a lot, but it's just... You do. I'm going tomorrow. In fact, which is, <laughs> well, in fact, when this podcast is out, I will You'll have just be got there. back. Oh, yeah, you've just yeah, got I back, get yeah. back on Christmas Eve. But um, yeah, I, so I'm just digressing loads here. But the, I have... I, I don't know if there's still a point where I might just break down because I was I've going to ask you do stopped. you process any of it I, I know you process some of it through your songwriting but do you ever sit down and think about what's happened and try and take stock and think about how you'll personally take move stock. forward I'd never um, or do you just throw yourself into creativity and I have not allowed myself way? to when we came off stage and, and it's awful this will be like I don't do this this is why it's weird I'm just doing it just for you because I don't allow myself to look back on anything. Whenever people bring stuff up, I'm like, I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about the next thing. But I will just tell you that the only thing that, the only breakdown, the only like massive emotional thing that happened, it's just such an odd thing to happen as like three guys. And, and this you, is and, three and, years ago today. Three years ago today, which is even more weird because we didn't plan that to be today, did we? No. It was like, I realised it. The only day we could do. Yeah. Um, you, were, you were at the show, so you might have seen this, but the three of us, didn't know this was happening, but we came off stage, went to the dressing room, each, like, I had a dressing gown overhead, and we were just each in tears. And we didn't know that we were all just cr- sat crying. And then um, we had to do Kerrang things and like interviews, but I don't, I think it was Jimmy who I mentioned earlier, he came in, he started crying. <laughs> so it was like a bunch of like cry babies, but he came in. And then when other people started trying to come in, like family and people, he just went out and just went, don't let anybody else in there. Like, they're, they're gutted. And it was because it was an awful stroke best show I've ever done. Like, and, and, and I don't want to talk too much about it because I hate talking about it, but it was that moment of, I struggled through the whole gig to keep it together. But it was when, during a song called Requiem, because I always keep my eyes closed when I sing, and I opened my eyes and the entire audience were holding signs that just said, thank you. And it just ruined me this <laughs> is so bad playing Brixton Academy again yeah man and the last time you guys played there it was going to be a triumphant night for the band it was the first time you'd played in that room as the headline act and it was supposed to be occasion of celebration Um, and then obviously the night before it was when the Bataclan attack in Paris happened (laughs) Um, 
sorry to start on a kind of heavy note <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. straight in, but I wonder if you could just sort of relay to me and people listening what that was like for you guys, because not only did you have to assume the role of leaders that night to unite people in this really difficult and trying and scary time but of course you were with the band as i was in the Mm. week leading up to the show as well Well, basically talk us through it basically we um we were on tour at the same time as um eagles and um we seen them in i think we had a night day off in in newcastle and we hung out with them guys had drinks with them guys went to the bar with the guys everyone was hanging out and having fun anyway they were playing that night and we were leaving that night so they played they played their show and we, we took off when I carried on touring, um, we got on stage in in Birmingham. Sorry, we got on stage in Birmingham. And we're on stage, and we're playing a storming set. This is the night before Brixton. A storming set. The crowd's going off. Energy is like 110 percent in the place. It's just beautiful. So we go off for the encore. When we go back on the encore, my mate Chris, who sort of takes care of me on the road, towels, water, stuff like that. I know Chris. <laughs> yeah, man, Chris Malby. Todd dad we call him <laughs> and um, basically normally he's got he stood at the door the, the, the dressing room door with a towel and water for everybody and he just hands us the towel and the water as we come off stage so we get we come off stage and he's nowhere to be seen so I walk down into the dressing room and he's just sat looking at his throne like with a white face and I said you alright mate he said yeah 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 yeah." I said where's the towels he said oh, oh sorry mate I'll get it off you he gets up gets the towels and he never said nothing to us so we got back on stage and the security guard in the front, as we, as we start warning, I'm doing a speech for the Newborn helicopter thing, like, and the security guard is at the front of the stage, like, this big black guy, he's holding his phone up. And I'm thinking, mate, we can do a selfie later on, like, I'm going to do it in the middle of the performance. And he's look, looking at me with his face, like, just looking, holding his phone in the air, like, showing me the screen. And I can't read it, I'm blind anyway, so I couldn't see what I, what I said on there. So we played the show, and as soon as we got off stage, we heard all this stuff about... You know, Eagles of Death Metal, Battle Clan shootings and all this. And we're like, wow. So the energy in the rock and roll world after that night for them, for them hours was quite, quite hardcore. You know, you had people in the crew. Like then we heard about, you know, the, the merch guy getting killed. who was a friend of our Sam's who does merch for us. He was killed and we was just with him a few nights before. So there was a lot of heavy energy in the room, you know. Had you encountered anything like that before nah, in your career? No, nah. I mean, it was a new ball game to play yeah. to- totally. You know, and there was a lot of fear in the room. I'll be honest. There was people in the band who wanted to not play the next night. Which was the Brixton which show. Which was the big yeah. Brixton show. And it was like, you know, it's London. And people was fearing for an attack. And, you know, and you know, I was just freaked out, to tell you the truth. And I was wondering what was going to happen. But, you know, I woke up in the morning in Brixton outside the venue. And I thought to myself, you know what? There's two ways to play this. We can pull the show out of respect. Or we can play out our respect. I don't think if you'd have pulled the show as well, anybody would have judged you harshly. No, no, no. Do you I know don't what think I mean? Would you would have been in with, would well have, within your means. Exactly, exactly. You know, I mean, we had that, you know. So we, we chose, and like I said, there was a big split in the band who wanted to do it and who didn't want to do it. But for me personally, in that sort of adversary, you've got to stand up to them people. If we said no, our, our lives, no matter what these people try to do to us in their shape and their form, our life needs to go on. So while we've booked, we need to book. we just got to be more vigilant, obviously. But we need to do what we need to do because rock and roll is something that ain't going to kill. There ain't no one going to kill our rock and roll birds, and that's what we bring, you know. And it was like we thought about it, and like I said, the band was split in half. We, some guys wanted to not do it, some guys wanted to. Unfortunately, we flicked the coin, and they landed on the side to do it. <laughs>
I've nailed a couple. I mean, I've nailed some that have been that one number one. So crying like a bitch, thousand horsepower from Godsmack. Those two, and I had Amy's Bring Me to Life and My Immortal, and then you got like Snuff and Psychosocial. Arguably, the two biggest Slipknot songs, probably ever. You know, I think commercially or, or in sales wise, per capita with what's happening digitally, they are for sure. You know. Was that record you did with them? That was the last album with the original lineup, right? Before Paul passed away, yeah. before Joey left. So, I mean, if you could put us in the eye of the storm, what it was like working with that unique mix of personalities, and because well, there's they, a... they split camps on me. You know, I maybe it was partly my fault because I I wasn't feeling the fact that yeah these core dudes that wrote the fucking history of the band was you know Corey, Paul, and Joey. And they had, Joey and Paul had done the demos like they always do, but yeah, now they have this opposition over here that doesn't want, they want to write too, you know. And I wasn't all about any of that shit, you know. So they got so mad that I didn't really want to entertain that idea. They went and built a, a fucking another studio next door. They were doing all their shit over here. That's originally where they, they put snuff on their board, and that's when I fucking lost it. And I'm like, dude, I'm like, Corey, follow me. You're laying this down right now on a click, and I'm going to develop it tonight. <laughs> Trust me. But that was a disaster. It was a nightmare. The fucking guys, me and the core people that made that band happen in the first place, got along famously. It was great. So you and those three, Joey, yep. Paul, Corey. Me, Joey, me, Joey, Paul, and Corey are the responsible for that band's success on that album, hands down. Jim and John are responsible for complaining a lot and talking about things that they don't even know what the fuck's going on in the first place about. Sean came in to play percussion, never even heard some of the songs. Like, that's how much you respect your band? You don't even know the fucking demo? Sid, what a nightmare. He didn't know a single fucking song when he came in to perform. And then he gets on VH1 and says, they ask him, how was it working day four? And he says, oh, he didn't really do anything. Well, really? Because you weren't even fucking there, dude. You didn't show up. He showed up one or two days, complained or whatever the fuck they were doing in the other studio, making noises in caves and shit. (laughs) They didn't do shit. Those fucking guys were it's so disrespectful of them to come out. And you know what? In the end, they actually turned it all back around in a Revolver interview because Jim fucked with my career. He came out and said he couldn't wait. Slagged the shit out of me in the press and it stayed on Google forever. I got rid of it eventually. They asked him, well, how was it working with Dave Foreman? And he basically said straight up, um, he made me appreciate Rick Rubin because he couldn't do what Rick could do, get nine people in a room together on the same page. Well, that's, you know what? It's not my fucking job at this point. I got the demos I need. I got the people that wrote them. I got the fucking rock stars that'll make it happen for me. I don't give a fuck if you're friends or not with these people. You, it's your band, okay? You guys are all millionaires now. Figure out how to be friends again. I don't want to be a fucking psychologist with a nine-person fucking monster. I got what I need. I don't need him complaining about it, you know. Or, and then he got really mad because, you know, first of all, they wouldn't come to practice. They wouldn't do shit. So nobody would come out to the fucking studio. So Joey started playing the drums for the songs he wrote, just playing them. And everything was fine. I got them to come listen to the fucking drum tracks that had not been the whole band playing together, like what they accused me of not getting the vibe later. I went and got Sean and Jim individually, made them listen to the drum track and say, is this fine? I mean, is it okay? I mean, they're like, oh yeah, man, keep going, bro. Gave me permission to do it. And then when Jim started playing guitar, one little transition of one of these songs, like he had helped, Joey put him in there to write, you know, help him write a couple of tunes. So one transition didn't go that well. Then all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose because I decide that I'm going to go back and look at some of the things and, and tighten up some things on drums or whatever. Joey didn't care. 
So then all of a sudden, there's this big fucking thing about how I didn't capture the vibe. They want to redo all the drums. And Joey basically said, go back and tell those motherfuckers that I'm not redoing the drums and I'll take all these songs and I'll walk out the fucking band tomorrow. So I basically went and told them that and they got shut down like little kids. And then they fucking hated me for it. They slagged me in the press. They came out and were total dicks about it. Because you were like the disciplinarian parent. Well, no, the battle was on. Who's going to win the war? We're going to win. We got the album under our fucking, we got it right in the palm of our hands. We have this album that'll crush people. And as it started to grow, they got more and more mad, you know. It was just, it, it, the album, the music itself that Jim did not want to use, by the way. He, he called a dinner with me and Corey and him and Sean and, like, the management about, we're not ready. And Corey spoke up and said, well, I just spent all this time writing these on the lyrics on these demos. And I think they're great. And I, I told him, I said, I think they're fucking fantastic, too. So you got a guy trying to eliminate all this shit that just got written. It's going to be about to be the biggest per capita fucking singles that they've ever had. Trying to flush all of it down the toilet based on his own ego. And it was really douchey of him to fucking do that. And uh, I'll give him this. He did come back in the press later and say, you know, it's really wasn't Dave Foreman. It was that they were in a turmoil between themselves. Um, I, I'll give him that. At least he turned around a little bit. But the real, the, you know, the sweet part of that record was to see him all on Jay Leno or see him fucking on Jimmy Kimmel playing Snuff. I was like, that you motherfuckers. I told you. So save your breath, I will not care. You don't want to do that's cool but could we talk about what happened with your heart yeah yeah yeah? No worries, yeah do you want to set the scene and tell us sort of um so yeah i mean very soon after that i ended up uh in fact this is what started it i gave up smoking and i gave up smoking on january the first and then i about a month later i was trying to climb stairs when i was walking the dog i started getting these pains in my chest and i couldn't climb the stairs so my wife saw what was happening and she was like this is really bad we need to get get you seen to and one day it happened and I couldn't climb up get off the tube she was like right I'm calling the ambulance so they come around took me in had a few tests and they said yeah you've got angina so then they give me this spray to alleviate the pain and I was taking that for about a month or so and then one night I went out and I had uh, a night on the what's it called Jaeger bombs with Red Bull and then that night I had a heart attack and uh, I took the spray and it wasn't doing anything. So they took me into the hospital and then they just left me by the side in the hospital. And I was like, no, you need to, I need to be seen now. I'm having a heart attack here. And they were like, all right, we'll just get the the main surgeon out. And he said, oh, he was a bit busy. He was on his 13th one. So he came out and uh, he had a look at me, put me up on the monitor and was like, yeah, yeah, you're having a heart attack. I'm just dealing with someone in there at the moment who's dying, but I'll uh, sort you out next. Fucking hell. And then he got me on the table and then stuck this thing up my arm and then put a, fitted a stent. And then when he was doing it, I heard him go, oh, 
And then afterwards, he said to me, oh, yeah, you, there was a blood clot on the main artery. He said, if I hadn't have got that, you would have been dead. He said, we call that one the Widowmaker. So he just sucked it out just in time. Fucking hell. Yeah. And what does the effect of something like that have on your long-term life? Do you find a new profound appreciation like, of like I had a baby soon so my wife was pregnant while when that was happening this, well, yeah yeah so fuck. all I was thinking is I want to meet my child and I don't want to die that was all I wanted to do so yeah as soon as that happened it was you know changed lifestyle totally I mean I'd already given up smoking but didn't drink didn't went vegetarian really Jaeger bombs are out the window Red Bull. Red Bull. Well, energy drinks are out the window, yeah. Oh, stuff. hence the... Hence, the yeah, yeah. <laughs> It all makes sense now. Yeah. Fuck, man. Well, here's the good health. Yeah, cheers. <laughs> and fatherhood. Yeah. Is that treating you well? Is that oh, I love it. It's beautiful, brilliant. positive I impact on your highly life. highly recommend it to everyone. It's really good. Your daughter's Margot, right? Margot, yeah. Love it. And she's, what, three, are you saying? She'd be coming up three, yeah. Two and a half she is at the moment. But, yeah, I, I think it's brilliant. Like, the minute they're born, you just... This overwhelming, the most amount of love you've ever felt for you and for them just goes, and yeah, you can can't really compare that with anything else. Where did you grow up, Hank? Where were you sort of born I grew up and in raised? Camden, Camden Town. That was where you were born and raised, right in the uh, heart. I was born in, in uh, actually in Welling, in a place called Brockett Hall, which is an old stately home. Right. Uh, Queen Victoria used to go and visit there so the recent TV series of Victoria which I never saw apparently there's lots of uh, sequences of her going to Brockett Hall and it's a stately home and it's very flash Uh, and in the 30s it was bought by a hideous bloke called Lord Brockett who was a Nazi you know, which wasn't surprising because a lot of the aristos at that time were Nazis. But he was a particularly nasty Nazi and he was a real card-carrying Nazi. So he was the full-blown homophobic, racist, Absolutely, bigoted, the whole thing. You know, and Hitler was, a, Hitler was a jolly good chap. In fact, in, 19th, in April 39, you know, when everybody knew there was something afoot, yeah. you know, and things were not too good, he and his mate, the Duke of Buccleuch, went over to Berlin uh, to celebrate their mate Adolf's 50th birthday. So they were kind of that close into it all. And when war broke out, um, he knew that the government were onto him and that they were going to requisition this house uh, and, and put squaddies in it. And to avoid the squaddies and their muddy boots and to appear magnanimous, he uh, said, oh, let's make it... A, he gave it over as a maternity house. Maternity building. So I was born in the Blitz, right right at the height of the Blitz. And British intelligence, as usual, got it wrong. And they had heard that the Luftwaffe were going to erase London on this particular night. And that's when I was going to get born. So my mum was evacuated out to Hertfordshire. Yeah, yeah. um, And had me there, Um, which was a nice irony. 
Uh, and in fact, they didn't, it didn't erase London, but that was the night they destroyed Coventry. I'm from Birmingham, just down the road. Yeah, oh, Solihull, so, Warwickshire so area. It was yeah. the, the morning of the In retaliation 15th. for Dresden, was it? Yeah. Was it? Yeah. yeah. It was the morning of the 15th of November, 1940, that they wiped Coventry off the map. And, um, and it's still never recovered from that. You can no, still see yeah. the, the poverty and the... Yeah, yeah. And that was on the night of the full moon, the blood moon. Um, and that was the, the and day that's when that you I was, came into the that's world. When I came into the world, and I was a that has a nice uh, kind of blues mythology. Yeah, and I was a, uh, uh, my mum. Who every time I'm, I'd take a girl back home, uh, and she'd look her up and, and, and find why she was not good enough for me, you know, because basically no one was good enough for me except my mum. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. She was one of those mothers. Um, and she'd go into the story of, oh, he was such a long baby. He was, you know, it took so long to get born. And I go, oh, here we go again. And we get this whole story. And then when she was about 80, she said, and it was doing the same thing, and said, and then they got the forceps. And I go, the what? She says, the forceps. What forceps? Oh, you were a forceps baby, hon. I did not, did not tell you. Did you not tell me? No, you never tell. You told me the story of my birth a hundred times. Never. So apparently, yeah, forceps. So I'm dragged out of my mum while Coventry's being uh, bombed to pieces uh, in a Nazi stately home, and my mum and dad were communists. So talk about irony. That's know. like the opening scene of a film, right there, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. So they were both card-carrying, passionate, dedicated oh, communists. Card-carrying. He was on the Central Committee of the British Communist Party. He was the chief sub-editor of the Daily Worker. And she worked um, and taught English at the Soviet embassy. So, so yeah, right in there. None more communist than that. So were you raised with a very sort of heightened aware of politics? Yes, and also a ra- as much that as, as, as raised in a kind of parallel universe. That you're, you're raised, and you're raised very definitely, that you know there are two different kinds of people. There's good people and bad people. Good people are communists and Russians. Bad people are Americans and Catholics. And the Catholic thing came in because my mum was from Glasgow. You know, right. Glasgow was more sectarian yeah, than, yeah. than Belfast. And because they weren't religious. If you're not religious in Glasgow, you're a Protestant. Oh, how good, Lord, it is to love you. Oh, God, how good to live. When every moment may be our last, be our last Save for the precious jewel you give Did you find it hard at the start to find your voice? And when did that voice, when did like the Doug Stanhope character that we know, when did that form and come into play? Oh, it was just over time. It was... Yeah, yeah, you just, as you age... Like that's what the, the dice problem was. Like he had a character that he was kind of locked into, yeah. and you can only go s- so many ways with. I put my shoe in her pussy, and her ass fell. Out. There's only so many holes and parts, and only so many offensive nursery rhymes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I just yeah. I, when I started, I talked about what I knew, jerking off and trying to get laid, and and then I became angrier as people tend to get as they age and yeah, yeah. more of life's down. secrets are revealed to you and they're not good yeah. <laughs> start talking about that stuff and i gotta say dude the bit that you did about your mom was so raw and fantastic um 
and real. Yeah, it took a long time to get that right, but I knew while she was killing herself that I would get some strong material out of this, which is one of those sad, sickening realities of comedy. If you're self-aware at all, you go, all right, I'm already trying to write some bits here, and she's still breathing. (laughs) Put a mirror under her nose to see if she's dead, and I already got three (laughs) punchlines. Was she someone that you had a great relationship with, though? Was she someone who, I guess, inspired that comic personality? Was she someone who was funny and... Well, yeah, she was uh, yeah, fairly caustic. She wasn't nearly as dark as I became. Yeah, this, this student becomes the master. Yeah, yeah. But it, growing up, yeah, she, she, I mean, uh, like terrible mother things, like letting us smoke cigarettes and read fucking Hustler magazine, which is probably why I'm so desensitized. I'm fucking asexual up. now. Yeah, I was jerking <laughs> off to fucking... Asexual, I Bred fucking beavers and other people were still jerking off to the yeah, yeah they're, they're still looking at the Sears catalog and I got a fucking Hustler magazine what about your dad did you have a good relationship with him yeah he was a, he was a soft touch he was 20 years older than my mother 18 years older and uh, just a nice guy just a big fat sweetheart didn't really have any range of emotions he was just how you doing guy good to see you yeah, I've never belly laughed in his life. Swore he uh, he had never been in love and didn't know what that means. Like, uh, but he thought I really thought your mother only divorced me because it was a popular thing to do at the time. And when I asked her about that, she goes, "Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Divorce was the big thing, like Mad Men era, you know, early seventies. Yeah, yeah. I want a divorce, Russell. <laughs> and do you have brothers and sisters?" I just have one brother. One brother. Yeah, a bit older. You guys close? Mm. No, not anymore. But that's fine. Life's too short to surround yourself with people who don't fucking laugh at the joke. And you don't get to pick your family, do you? So it's like... Yeah, no, I don't understand that people who... Well, it's my family. Well, then get rid of them. If they're fucking assholes, all you do is bitch about them. You have no... It's not, you know... Fucking caveman days where yeah, someone's gonna, you know, to yeah, yeah, tan the hide for well, winter shoes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you needed a family unit, you know, to survive. Shit, yeah. yeah, now it's just a fucking expense. I'm getting married and you have to come out. You, you better take the time off because you're gonna be my, you know, best lady or whatever. And what are we gonna wear? And it's a big pain in the ass. I'm at that age now where everyone I know is getting married. Well, I'm actually now at the age where everyone is married and is now popping out kids. And you're like, fuck. Yeah, Did fucking Glenn Wool was here last you know, night. No, no. No, I get a vasectomy. Was... Did you cut yourself out of the game? Out yeah, I had to have an abortion where I thought that I was blowing stale seed. Like, I never knocked anyone up, so I wasn't worried about it. I just assumed. Yeah, the fucking alcohol and the cigarettes and the occasional drug use has fucking killed all my sperm and then oops i was wrong so she got an abortion i get a vasectomy right afterwards never looked back and what's your favorite drug i guess i I, never do drugs anymore almost never but i think ecstasy would be the one even though the come down is so hard yeah it's brutal but that high is so good yeah yeah, it's a, if you get clean stuff, that's a problem. You can't count on it. You don't know who made it. Back when it was you know, pharmaceutical, 
Yeah, you knew how much to take, what it was made of, what it's going to do, how long it's going to last. But uh, mushrooms as well, like, but yeah, that's the mushrooms that's the o- opposite. It's right the now. it's the hardest come on. Yeah. Like, ah, oh, fuck, I don't want to puke. Like, just puking it's is like so doing, bad. Like, merry-go-round, like, fairground ride, isn't it? Yeah, your fucking legs start going weak, and you, you don't know if you're going to vomit. You don't know how hard it's going to kick. But you you end the opposite of like a, a just a drunk bender where you, I'm never gonna drink again. You end mushrooms going. Why don't I do these all the time? I know, right? I feel like that. Me and my friends about two or three months ago, um, there was like freak snow from the UK. It was super deep, and we went out to a place called the Epping Forest, which is where like Henry VIII used to go hunting. Like it's a famous, magical, you know, beautiful forest, and it was so covered in snow. It was like being in fucking Narnia or something. And we went out there and had a heroic dose and just spent the day in this forest just like losing our mind. That sounds horrible to me. <laughs> really? Yeah, first of all, I, I need to be, I want to be in a, a like a hotel room, <laughs> fucking perfectly cleaned with thick comforters. I get cold really easy anyway on mushrooms. I can get very cold. Yeah, I want to be wrapped up in a comforter, giggling. Fucking snow? No. No. <laughs> to me that my life ran on too fast and I had to take it slowly just to make the good parts last when you're born to run it's so hard to just slow down this is an interesting story I was in Tokyo for the well imminent future but indefinite future as well we, we, we plan to live there and then one evening, I had my boyfriend's friends over from work, and obviously Tokyo English, English, Japanese. All, all English, all English. Uh, there was only two of them, so three of us. So we're all English. We're sat around having a spaghetti bolognese, which I look back now on, and I, I, I feel sorry for the people who ate it because back then I didn't have a fucking clue how to cook, so it would have been really bland. <laughs> but they were really polite, and obviously. Um, Japan is ahead of New York and London and all of their phones started to ring at the same time and we were like whoa this is weird and they answered them all and their faces dropped and they were told we were told to put on CNN and 9-11 had just happened and their office was in the top of the first building that got hit above where the plane hit so everyone I mean that was just such a surreal moment because I was so young and I, I look back now and I just think the whole of that company, that company lost more people than any other business in that. In the, really? Any, yeah, the company lost nearly every employee that went to work that day, I think, passed away. Um, and subsequently, they had to close down or move people around across APAC and uh, Europe. So we got moved back because of 9-11. And it was just such a horrible evening. I remember it was evening where we were. It was daytime in London. People were phoning and saying, oh, my God. And I always just think to myself, if 9-11 hadn't happened, I, what would I be doing now? But, I mean, it's an awful thing to have happened. But everyone's lives who worked in that business as well kind of got uprooted. So people who just moved there got moved back to London. Other people went to the States to help set up what would be the next phase of that business so it was just a really weird time and we came home 
he was sent back to London and was like... How deeply and profoundly was your guy at the time affected by that? Did he lose a lot of friends? He lost um, people he spoke to in that office. You know, he might not have ever met them, but there were, you know, brokers and traders speak to each other on a daily basis. They're always communicating. Yeah. It was, I, I do remember going back and having, there was a, a huge memorial at St. Paul's Cathedral um, and for everybody. And there was, we went and there were just so many family members all in, you know, there in St. Paul's Cathedral. And there were people there who had lost um, family members, relatives, whoever, husbands and wives who were there that day. It was horrific that 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 period of time because he it 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 hit him hard, but he was very young. So, you know, when you're young, you kind of you don't. I think when you the older you can you brush get, yourself the, off yeah. easier. There's truth in that. Mm. So I think he did, but the interesting thing, one of the most devastating things, were when he said to me, "I'm going to go to Tokyo." It was either New York or Tokyo, and I said, "Obviously, New York would be a dream because." I think I'd be able to find work easier. I've just, you know, it's, it's, it's not as far. People can come and visit. Um, and one of his colleagues was, was sent to, to New York. Same age. He was 21 at the time and he, he died. And so you always think to yourself, you can count your lucky stars that you're still here today and you weren't sent to New York. I want to ask you about this as well. It's a bit of a kind of crass, heavy-handed segue. Okay. Um, but I discuss and deal with mental health a lot on this okay. show. Okay, well, that's um, fine. And it's a topic that's very close to my heart. My mum's a lifelong manic depressive sufferer. Oh, I'm sorry. And so I am very aware of the, you know, the damage and the devastation that mm. severe mental health problems cause. Yeah. Um, I wanted to kind of hear your story of, first of all, how the illness surfaced and when you became first aware of it. Um, Are you okay to go down? Oh, God, absolutely. Yeah. I, mean, I, I talk about it all the time. I, it doesn't bother me in the slightest. I'd rather talk about it because then it can help other people. That's my thinking. Yeah. Um, no, I think, like, from when I was young, I was always a little bit off the wall, and I'd be up and down and up and down, and I'd overeat, I'd undereat. You know, I'd always had a kind of addictive personality. And then, um, yeah, I think the older I got it got more destructive in in the fact that I hated myself even more. And even though I was doing all the great things in the 90s, I go, oh, amazing, amazing, amazing. Because that's a manic high. You're yeah. having the best time. And then suddenly you get home and you're on your own. You're crushed. And you're crushed. You are. You're just like, I don't know what to do. And then the doctors put me on. Well, I stopped eating for quite a long time. And then the doctors put me on Prozac. My mum was on Prozac. Um, and then... Yeah. It was, I think Is it, it something for you that runs in the family as well? Well, I mean, I don't have my mum anymore, but um, I know that she had ups and downs and we never talked about it. It wasn't her thing to talk about, you know. She was kind of... Of that generation, yes, yeah. Yes, that, that's her problem. Don't talk to me about it. Yeah. And it wasn't a problem to her. But, you know, you could see the ups and downs and all the rest of it. But, um, yeah, so they put me on Prozac. Oh, my gosh. I think I've been on every single drug that you could possibly give me. And none of them were working. And then um, when work started to dry up a bit and relationships weren't going well, I kind of started, well, I'd done the starving myself thing and then self-harming. I did that for quite a while. 
which was quite odd because I did it quite late. I think I started self-harming about 25 or 26. Which is rare, isn't it? Yeah, because it's usually sort of like a teenage type thing. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's, it's not great, I was going to say, but at least I could talk to it, uh, talk about it. You know, I mentioned my daughter knows everything about me, which I think, you know, my ex and I were kind of, what do we say? And I, I said, well, in this day and age, she's going to read it yeah. somewhere. Yeah. Because there's been all sorts of things written, some untrue, some truths, but it's going to be there online. So then, um, yeah, I just decided to stop taking all medication, which I wouldn't advise to everybody because everyone's different. Well, my um, my mum has been well now for seven or eight, at least, years, maybe nine, nice. which is great. Um, well done, mum. What's your mum name? Hillary. Hi, Hillary. Hillary. And she's she's been well for a long time, and I think that we're sort of through the worst of it. And she would... Was that tricky for you, though, the whole time? Well, it's all I know, really. What happened was I was I was about six or seven, and we had a sis, either sister. We had another addition to the family, and she died after about three weeks. Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, and so my mum had to obviously bury her, and you can only imagine how devastating. Yeah, my mum had a loss as well when yeah, a tiny coffin that size going into the ground and having because it wasn't a miscarriage or anything like the baby was born, but yeah, she was ill when she was born, and then she yet yeah, only lasted three weeks or so, and. That, I mean, it, it's in my family and my great aunt has it. So my mum's aunt and her grandma had it. So it's always been there yeah. in the genes, if you will. But my mum was healthy and fine before that loss. And yeah. then that triggered it. And then after then, from then 20 years on, always around her cycles, I guess, because it was linked to yeah, yeah. birth and, and that. And she'd probably have two, three, sometimes four breakdowns a year, every year. Bless her. And it would always be when she stopped taking her medication. And I don't really? I don't blame her for that because I think she'd always, she'd miss the high that the breakdown, the rush yeah. would, would give her because she'd be so upset and devastated about dealing with this loss. And she knew if she, this is the way I look at it, and I need to talk to her about it properly, really. I, I think that she would stop taking her medication because she needed some release or escape. Yeah, yeah. And then she'd go off on these flights of, and it was, you know, terrifying because she'd take the car and go driving. And there was one moment where she was actually in like a high speed police chase because she thought that the police were out to kill her because of the oh. paranoia. She's driving oh, down she the motorway. On? She was on various different drugs, Largactyl for a time period, lithium. Oh, oh yeah, I've, I've um, done the lithium, Seroquel. And oh, my gosh, they just try out one. different things as well, like what, I guess what you were saying is that, well, that doesn't work, we'll try something else. And it was so haphazard for so many years. But, yeah, the police had to lay down like a, um, you know, those things you see in action movies to blow the tyres. Sylvester Stallone. S- like so that, they put him down on the ground and to like, stop the car. Do you know what I mean? The <laughs> yeah, spikes. I know exactly what you mean. And, and the car oh rolled. She, and they got her out and they handcuffed her because they thought she was on drugs or drunk or something. And they breathalyzed the drug tester, nothing. And they were like, we don't understand. And she's just like, no, I'm sick. I'm not well. And um, But yeah, I think that the, the reason why it would always be sort of set off in her is she'd decide for one reason or another, I'm, I'm okay, I don't need this or... Yeah, yeah. I want to it's, go down that and you stop hard, taking them. It's hard, isn't it? I think it's, it's difficult for every, everyone's different, I suppose. Yeah. Some people, I've got a friend that's in therapy at the moment and he's finding it brilliant. He doesn't take any Just to talk anything, about just it. Just talking. Whereas um, I've got another friend that's completely, you know, she's got everything 
drug wise yeah. and she's completely happy as well yeah that seems to float along with life and i've just you know i go to the gym now and go running and that's my thing and i know a few people who found that that really helps exercise yeah. just well even this morning form I, just therapy, thought, I, can't, isn't it? I can't be bothered but i get up i make sure i get up and even if i just do two and a half k or something then i come home and i think i've been outside you've seen how pretty the, the world is and yeah. there's a lot worse things happening and uh, sometimes I think like, when you read things about yourself as well, so your mum's been through a really awful time. People always say to me, oh, God, you've had such a tough life. You know, you lost your hair. You've lost your mum. You know, you were homeless. Da, da, da. And I, I always look at them going, I'm fine. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I, I've, I always pick myself up and keep going. And I think it's when people say to you, oh, God, it must be awful. Mm-hmm. Then you think, oh, should I be depressed? Yeah. No, I'm going to keep it on that care. But your poor mum, because my mum, we lost, it was my cousin, and but he lived with us, and he was, like, very young. And it was, yeah, my mum fell apart. And also, um, we were quite um, stoic. Yeah. So no conversations were to be had, and this is what's happened, and there's been a death, and everyone go to the rooms. Yeah. It was a bit like that. So we all kind of like, yeah, verged on different kinds of mental health problems. So, um, yeah, we've had quite a few suicide attempts and <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing. I think I'm laughing because everyone's still here apart from my mum. But she was, um, yeah, she, I lost my mum to lung cancer, which was bizarre because she never smoked. And my dad smokes crazy amounts and happily, you know, thank goodness, touch wood, he's completely fine and in his 70s, but yeah. Shit happens, as they say. She says there's ants in the carpet Dirty little monsters Eating all the muscles Picking up the rubbish Give her effervescence She needs a little sparkle Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 